What's going on, Asymmetry? What's up, everybody? Well, Mr. Knight, Mr. Randy Knight, Yamadori collector extraordinaire, uh, came into the studio to rap with Lime and I just about kind of life. And one of the interesting things about Randy that unless you're close to him and and sort of uh, are routinely in conversation with him is he is leading a life filled with adventure, curiosity, and exploration of everything, literally everything. There's nothing that doesn't make him curious. There's nothing he's not interested in learning about. And uh, it was pretty cool because uh, I think we caught him on a, on a on an evening where he felt relatively open to share, and uh, and we got to tap into his hunting passion, his travel passion, and and just sort of the background to the man, the myth, and the legend. Um, it was enjoyable to sit. Always enjoyable to hang out with Randy and Lime and uh, and talk about life and all things uh, of that matter. But um, hope you guys enjoy learning a little bit more about a very special person in our Boneside community and a very close friend of mine. Every year for the Kokfu, all the apprentices get together with Mr. Kamura and have kind of like an apprentice gathering. And he wrote me to say, what the hell do I do? <laughs> Which is, it's like, good luck. Sink or swim. Don't sink. Just swim. <laughs> Is it uh, a, like a meeting? It's not like a meeting. It's like a uh, you know, it's like a celebration and a gathering as it's as it would be conducted in Japan, which is full of a lot of rigid cultural expectations, particularly in that feudal system of apprenticing. So it's not at the nursery. This is out in the public. It's place. out in the public. Yeah, I'll be in Tokyo somewhere. <clears throat> and the hard thing is, I mean, when you're one of the because now Mr. Kimura's apprentices have apprentices. So the community is growing that's coming to this thing. This started when I was apprenticing there where they would get together because for a long time they were relatively separate. We'd get together on New Year's, uh, but but this is a bigger group of people that have studied with them, sort of their extended student core. And uh, when you're on the lowest rung of the totem pole, it can be quite an uncomfortable event because <laughs> everybody's yelling at you um, or, or, or at least making snide comments about how you're not uh, not delivering as a as an apprentice and being a foreigner in that situation is rough, rough. So rough. is this uh, an American apprentice? Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's an American. He came here before he went to Japan. Just, Who is this? Um, his his name is Adam, and uh, I think he's from somewhere in the eastern United States. Hmm. So, but he went for it. There's a lot. There are a lot of foreign apprentices in Japan now. This doesn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah. I think it's great. It's great. You can't get that kind of experience anywhere else. Right. I, yeah, it's questionable whether the techniques are crossover or applicable, but but it's still, you know, as far as learning the discipline of bonsai, it's it's definitely effective, I think. It means there's a bigger group of people that are committing to trying to make this a a more a long term future with bigger implications and yeah. more than a hobby. Yeah. Yeah, it seems that way, doesn't it? Yeah, I feel like that. It's hard to be, I, I'm not a core part of your group, but just being affiliated nearby, I see so many people come and go and so much going on that it's hard for me to separate reality from, because I know that if I go to other places in the country, it'll be like, oh God, that's what it was in, in the 90s in a yeah. club scene. Yeah. So I'd be the first one to say, I don't, I'm not a good judge of that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think when you start to see, 
the ambition to do bonsai professionally is probably a lot like the ambition to collect Yamadori professionally. It's a, it's a, it's very romantic, and the reality of it is not it's not so much, right? <laughs> not as it's not groovy all the time. People can hear the soundtrack as they're struggling through the mountains, carrying this world class juniper on their back, <laughs> rattlesnakes, cougars, and they make it through. And all the balls come like, out perfectly. When you're up there just getting bashed in by the rock, I'm sure it's not that fun. The weather is always good. It's always 70 degrees, <laughs> right. and the trees only weigh 30 pounds, and they're always 200 yards from the truck on yes. the flat ground. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a wet dream. You enter. It's like walking through the closet in Narnia. You enter the mountains, and the trees come to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I mean... <clears throat> Had I known what my apprenticeship would be like, I probably wouldn't have done it. Uh, just because you couldn't, I don't think you could rally for something like that, knowing what it looked like on the way in. Um, but I think the other thing is just like, uh, I wonder with all of the apprentices that are studying in Japan right now, do any of them actually have a plan for when they finish? This is an interesting concept mm. because uh, when Walter was out in early December, we were at uh, another bonsai professionals in Portland and, you know, he's creating other apprentices who are going on graduating, if you will, and moving on into the bonsai community. Though I don't really know how any of them survive. I, I don't have real direct contacts with them, but I don't sense that any of them, and I'm not trying to talk smack here, mm -hmm. but if I, I'm always curious, and, and I probably I ask as many questions as I can until I make people uncomfortable, because I'm really <laughs> curious about what, what are you doing with your, you know, with your skills, and are you making a living, and and mm. who do you work for, and how do you do it, and all these things, and it's not me trying to look for their business, it's me trying to ascertain whether the community of professionals affiliated with Bonsai in any way is growing, yeah, or if we're all just fighting for the same pool of yeah of clients and tree sales and pot sales. Um, but there was, there was some, just some talk that came up in relation to field growing and some other things. And I thought, uh, there was a case of somebody that's actually working towards that, but they've got a lot of misinformation and mm. kind of wanted to help them. And I, I offered, I, they haven't reached out yet, but at the same time I thought, what a strange world where when I was trying to get my business up and running and I did all sorts of little, th you know, I had my fingers and a dozen little pies trying to earn an annual income mm -hmm. in the beginning until I got where I am. And if somebody was offering me insight or guidance or just feedback or somebody who had a little bit of experience and just wanted to chat, I'd have been all over that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd have been scratching at that guy's door trying to say, what do you think about this? What was your experience with that? Do you think this could work? That didn't work for you, but how, how close was it to working versus not working? Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I follow that all the time, and recently we were um, another conversation. It was last weekend with your your uh, class at dinner. Mm. Um, the idea of why other bonsai professionals don't don't ever come out here or, or ask me about my trees and where do they get their stock and what do they do? And it's like I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it feels like we've got a little uh, a kind of a self sustaining group out here in the Pacific Northwest, but. What do the guys in the Midwest and the East do in the South and the Northeast? Sure. They got their own programs for sure uh, and their own little regional groups and and habits, but it, it still feels to me, I'm not as 
I'm not as linked into the bonsai community by any sense like you are, mm-hmm. but I'm shocked at how few people I actually hear from yeah. or hear relevant news about. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, you, and you could look at it in a, a few different ways. Like, um, there is no singular resource for information. Like when you think about Japan or when to some degree Europe, I don't, I don't know how true it is, but Japan has Kinbone magazine and, uh, and Europe has bonsai focus, which I guess also applies to North America. Although I think, I think we all understand that it's maybe not as representative of the North American community. Right. And I, and there there is like a uh, a central reference point to some degree in Kimbone and sort of the per, per personalities present, uh, and then the the routine annual exhibitions that draw the same patrons and clientele to be interacting with that community. And so in inside of that, I see where there's a lot more of a capacity to gauge, but there's also like. You know, if you still go to the Green Club at a Kokufu exhibition, you're going to see trees you've never seen before. And you're saying, well, in Japan, there can't be any more trees that nobody's ever seen, but they still exist. And I think it's inside of that same, like, backyard sort of single soul practitioner aspect of bonsai where there's probably a lot of pockets in the United States that where people are doing cool stuff, interesting stuff, unique stuff, or just doing stuff. And somehow somebody knows them and somehow whatever they know about them or or of the things that they're doing starts to form a relationship. That's the only sense I can make of it. It's the only sense I can make of it because material continues to come out of places. It's just places. It's really right. interesting. The country's big and there's a lot of people in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are a little bit more independent minded. So there's going to be lots of lone wolfish people out there. Yeah. And uh, non-club joiners and yeah. not really affiliated with anyone. Some of the work is good. Some, well, you know. Sure. At least they're out there doing it. Sure. Totally. Well, and I think there's also probably a lot of very talented people with very good trees that nobody knows do bonsai. Oh, I bet that's real true. There's a lot of that. And and suddenly when, suddenly when one of those people or one of those collections shows up, nobody knew it even existed or somebody knew it existed but never spoke about it or maybe was not allowed to speak about it. And all of a sudden there it is. And it's like, huh. Where the hell did that come from? You know, so like, who are you? Where you been? It's really, it's it's pretty interesting. What uh, what's on the agenda tonight for chatting? Just uh, well, rambling, or it, were there? I yeah, I guess were there ra- things. I guess rambling because we've always had an agenda with you, but you know, just like rapping with you on the phone today about <laughs> about all the things you're you're trying to do and stuff. I was like, man, we've never just rapped with Randy on the podcast. Let's unpackage who you are. <laughs> when you're when all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to New Zealand to hunt. Uh, what were you going to hunt there or try to hunt when you get to go? I'm going to try and hunt uh, waterfowl, uh-huh. ducks, geese, swans. They, uh, the swans are the black swans, but they're invasive there. Uh, they're such a problem. There's no limit. The ones that you would, people would see here in the park, but I'm going to do that. And I would like to try and do a little bit of fishing while I'm over there and maybe some do it yourself tar hunting, which is like a black mountain goat uh-huh. and they have red deer and they got lots of, in, a lot of things that are introduced. They don't in, really uh, have this, uh, native fauna, do they? They do, but nothing with uh, horns per se. Ah. So, and most of the most of the country is public. Mm. However, the best 
animals that people really go over there to hunt and pay serious money for are behind high fences, which has a, a derogatory connotation to it because everybody thinks, well, you know, the animal's just right there behind the wire and it's trapped. Most high fence places are 20, 40, 60,000 acres. There's 640 acres in a square mile. Yeah. Uh, typically you'll go through a fence on the way in. That's what I've seen in South Africa too. And you spend two or three days back in there and you don't see the fence until you come out again. Hmm. So it's really just a way to keep some things in and keep some things out. Um, I've never been there. That would be a shitload of fence to try and maintain. It is. I mean, that's a, if you're talking about <clears throat> 40, 60,000, what'd you say? 40, Some 60, of them are 60,000 acres. 60, acres yeah. And it's all fenced? Yeah, a high fence. So this is usually about seven feet, I believe, <sighs> so that uh, big game can't jump in and out. And it's as much to keep neighbors' cows and sheep and stuff from getting in and eating your forage and crop. And, right. Uh, they're always trying to make things with bigger horns. And so you don't want the, the feral, the, the free range animals. They would be like, uh, well, what's. I better not use a people analogy or I'll, I'll hurt somebody's feelings. <laughs> so, but but it would, would be like a real scrawny, one-horned uh, buck coming in and wrecking up 30 years worth of breeding where yeah, right. the horns are, uh, I don't know, six feet by five feet and they got points everywhere. Interesting. You, you don't want scrawn in there. Interesting. Do you like hunting? I mean, you went to Mongolia and hunted fowl too, right? Mm-hmm. I've been... Uh, I've been half a dozen places now hunting waterfowl. Mm-hmm. It's something that I can afford, and it takes me to uh, horns and hooves. I always say are expensive, uh, feathers not so much, and it takes me to some really crazy places. Mm. A couple of years ago, I was in Azerbaijan. I was in Mongolia. I was just in South Africa last year, Argentina. Um, yeah, Russia. Places that you just ordinarily wouldn't go as a tourist, and, mm-hmm. and I like that. Mm. I've been in Europe a few times, and when I was in Argentina, a lot of times I can do a day or two coming or going and in one of the major cities and do tourist stuff, and that's fun too. Mm. But uh, You ever been really scared being out there in some of these remote places and foreign places? Um, I had a little bit of fear one time in Guyana. On my first Amazon fishing trip in the mm. jungle, I had some sort of, uh, well, let's just say it, it was supernatural, possibly witchy, shamanistic kind of an experience. It wasn't frightening so much as it was like, oh, what is this? And I don't understand it. I've never experienced this. It's kind of cool, but freaky. Wait, what uh, What happened? How, what? I, I've never heard this story. Um, so this was a story where I had, uh, a couple of invasive dreams. Um. What's an invasive dream? And I don't really know. I haven't looked it up. My little sister told me about it and she follows some Native American stuff more than I. But, uh, we'd had, uh, one day where I was on a six or a seven day fishing trip where we'd gone up river to a camp and we'd fish out every day in boats for a day and a half. We went four or five hours upstream through several rapids and made a camp and fished in some, uh, just below some impassable waterfall waterfalls. And we were after peacock bass primarily, but we were catching payara, which have, they call them vampire fish, got great big fangs that come up from the underside mm. about two inches long. Mm-hmm. It's like a silver salmon with fangs and other, fi- lots of different things. Piranhas would foul the lines a lot, but in the, uh, 
in the evening, um, there was some drinking and some of the, one of the sports got drunk and was making an ass of himself. And it kind of riled the Indian guides up a little bit. And it was uh, a thunderstormy night and we had tents set up on the beach, but everybody was drenched wet and it was about 70. It had cooled down to 70, but the humidity was probably at a hundred percent. It was raining hard. <laughs> and in the middle of the, the night, I'd laid down, right, laid down and with my roommate across the way. And uh, do you remember what the Michelin man looks like? He looks like a little square block of white. Yeah. So something about four feet tall, I, w- I was dreaming peacefully and something that looked like the Michelin man made out of ice cubes walked right up to me and kind of got down low, like in a football stance and just blew into me. And I woke up just as I was getting launched and airborne. And that was more than a dream. Don't know what it was, but it, uh, yeah, I'll probably be embarrassed if people ask me about this in the future, <laughs> but it woke me up wide awake. And my roommate had heard me kind of struggling over there before. And he was awake and he said, settle down, settle down. Everything's okay. What's going on? And I said, wow, I just had something that was, and I've had dreams and nightmares. Commonly I'm about to get bit by something and I wake up and sure. you know, you're kind of clawing and scratching yeah. and making funny noises. Um, this time I was up and I was like a yowl. It was like, whoa, I've never had anything feel as real as that. Wow. And the fact that it was like an ice cube man on a night when it was, it had been 90 and raining and then it just cooled down. It's like weird. Mm-hmm. So then nothing. And two nights later we went back and uh, we, we went back to the main camp and I had uh, one of the guides had gone out and collected some some bird specimens for me. And uh, some of the camp hosts apparently weren't cool with it, but we didn't know that at the time. I'd ask permission. I said, "Yeah, yeah, let him go get them." And so he brought those back. And wait, they told you you could go get them, and but they weren't. They really... kind of changed their mind. It was a beginning fishing camp on an Indian reserve, and we were using the Indians as guides. Uh-huh. Um, and so one of the guys was very. There's a few Indians down there that are still really knowledgeable about the jungle. Um. They walk around. It's it's super cool. They're, they're in their bare feet and their toes are splayed wide open. And they can carry unbelievable weights up 45 degree peeled logs to, to carry heavy boats up the up onto riverbanks. Because you'll have a eight or a 10 foot sheer bank. And they'll find a spot where a tree has fallen down over it. And two or three guys will put a 300 pound boat, oh, John geez. boat on their, over their shoulders. And they'll walk that up like ants. It's just unbelievable. And you see that it's like, whoa, these guys are athletes on a different order. Huh. Um, but they're in their environment. He was one of those guys. He, he was dressed in rubber boots and T-shirts, but he was one of the younger kids that still was close to the, what I would call the their environment. Like everywhere else, they dream of ghetto blasters and cell phones and Western clothing and kind of sad, but, mm-hmm. but it is what it is. Uh, so anyway, he had gone out and, and got a couple of birds for me. And uh, I wake up in the morning, My a different roommate's kind of tapping me and say, hey man, there, there's a bird out here for you on the porch. I said, what? I, no, no, I know I got those. He came in at two in the morning with my psalm. We're going to deal with them at daylight. He said, no, this, this bird's alive. And I said, what? He says, it's a, it's a heron or a stork or something. I thought, what? That can't be. I said, is, where is it? What's out here in the yard? Well, so I got up and I walked out and it was right on outside our front porch. The same Indian kid had collected this kind of a light blue heron about uh, 
two feet tall. And he, I, I found out later what the story was, but he brought it back and he had just set it out in front of the Step Star little bungalow, which is really just a palapa with half walls mm-hmm. and built about four feet off the ground. Well, this bird was sitting out there on one leg for the night, and this is an, an open compound, and there's a, a row of palapas along, and there's about 40 feet over to the uh, an eight-foot bank, and then you drop down into the river, which was at low stage. It would look like uh, a northeastern brook or some of the streams we have here on the coast, mostly rocky and granite with uh, sandy beaches. And clear water, which was not and isn't most people's idea, what you're going to find in the Amazon. Mm-hmm. Now, this was just north and it drained. Uh, it was part of the Orinoco. No, it, it wasn't. It was neither the Orinoco or the Amazon, but it was a similar big river that drained down and went north into the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I walked out and I, I took a look at this bird and it uh, put its other foot down and put its head up and it flew slowly in circles around me in the center of that thing. It made three or four circles about two feet off the ground and about four feet out, just continuing to circle me until the village, uh, the mangy dog that was there came up and chased it off and it picked up and flew away. I saw the Indian kid about a half an hour later. He came up and he said, what What was the story with that bird? He said, well, I just saw it. It was sitting on a log when I was out looking for the kingfishers and I grabbed it and brought it back because I thought about you. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I just left it there for you. It, the others were had been killed. Yeah. Um, but these for this one, he had, it was weird, and he had this kind of a funny look in his eye, and he wasn't there. Were, there was no animosity in him at all. It was just some sort of a weird circumstance. And again, the whole thing was freaky. <clears throat> Pretty much everybody come out on the plop and all the guides had walked out of their tent about 30 or 40 feet away to watch this bird flying around me. It was cool. And and mm. and nobody said anything else to you? They were just like, yes, you, the one the heron flies around. <laughs> and, then it, and then the mangy dog chased it off and everybody was like, mangy dog chases off bird. Let's go fish. That was I, it? Kind of. The bird, uh, I think the bird would have continued to fly around in the twilight there just before dawn. Um, he was he was in no big hurry to go anywhere. And, you know, when he stretched out, he had a, a five-foot wingspan, wow. and he was just making these great big gentle flapping motions circling around me, and I was just watching him. And my roommate was up on the porch watching it, and I, when he flew away, all the guys were just over there watching the whole thing, and everybody went back to their morning. You knew you were a Sasquatch. No, I don't, I don't know what it was, but it was two things that were very. I've had, yeah. I've had things like that happen to me periodically, but those were just different and only two days apart. And I sense that it was related to. I don't know. It, it was clear there was a lot of animosity when the uh, the ice cube man blew me out. Yeah, <laughs> but it was a completely different feeling. The, the exact opposite of that with the bird. Do Do you think that? Um... Do you th- would you consider yourself close to the land? Yeah. Yeah. Do yeah. you think that that comes with sort of your your background and your family origin and all that stuff? Do you draw much association or or continuity with that and a closeness proximity to the land? I don't know that it comes from my background. It probably has more to do with the fact that I'm passionate about it and interested in it. Yeah. Um I'm really good at observation. So 
because I like that kind of stuff and being out in nature and being, especially being alone in the woods, which I'm super comfortable with. Um, I probably just am exposed to different things and the same thing might happen to anybody else that's out there. I might be more likely to be aware of it mm. or notice subtle differences or have the ability to put my see subtle changes. Like when I'm hunting, especially, uh, being able to see something or be aware of something that allows me to, to put myself in a situation where something like that can happen more commonly. Mm-hmm. Probably that's more realistic. My father and my parents were had real strong Native American beliefs, but they weren't close to the land. So your father also subscribed to Native <laughs> American beliefs? Mm-hmm. Now, does he have any Native American ethnicity? He, yeah, he did. My mother did. Uh-huh. Um, and all four grandparents did. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Hudson's Bay, Minnesota, uh, Woodland Plains Indians. Mm-hmm. Think birch bark canoes and wow. catching beavers and eating a lot of fish. Yeah. They probably met some mosquitoes too. <laughs> so when you when you go hunting like <coughs> with all of all, you know all of these other people out there and stuff do do any of those people ever give you ever give you the kind of wrong wrong kind of vibe and you're out in the middle of the Amazon with them or is everybody pretty genuinely interesting or cool or at least somebody you can get along with That one day when the Iceman met me uh, there was some animosity there, but it may not have been directed directly at me. Mm. It might have just been, it was a strange, weird night and people were really afraid. Uh, the Indians were afraid. I know that I was fishing downriver before dark and it got two pyar on the surface. It was just awesome. And uh, they came down to get me. They, they kind of waved at me from a couple hundred yards away and I was catching fish. It's like, it's still daylight. I'm I'm not done fishing. I'm getting hit. And, uh, but in that same area, I... Uh, the caiman, which are really like a crocodile. They're quite large. And there was a one that was probably 10 or 12 feet. And uh, he'd been really close when we'd br- come into this big hole. Well, I'd caught a little peacock bass and I was kind of wandered down close to where the uh, the shoreline sloped in a little bit easier so I could pull him over and unhook him and turn him loose. And I let that little fish go. And I noticed I hadn't been paying attention. And that caiman was only about 12 or 15 feet away and swimming in on me. Oh, geez. Now, I don't know that he was going to bite me. But he was territorial, and we were in his pool, and he might have just been curious. He certainly wasn't afraid. And I remember at the time, I, I had a little bit of the copper fear taste in my mouth for a little bit then, <laughs> and I kind of stood up, but I realized he was far enough away, and I, I, but I backed up. Because I, I, like everyone, I've seen the pictures. I know they can move pretty fast. Yeah. And uh, they're big. I mean, we'd gone over him coming in. He was just three or four feet under the boat in clear water, and if you were to like sit on top and try and wrap your arms around him for an adult man, it would be, that would be, you might not get quite all the way around his Jeez. midsection. And in the water, you know, you just see a little bit of the tail and the, and the head and most of the back is submerged. But, uh, so anyway, I, I made another five minutes of fishing. Pretty soon I had one of the guys on there saying, we need to go. And, and they were afraid of cats up oh. there. So there was all sorts of things that they we're a little bit worried about. And then the weather took such a drastic turn with that thunder shower and we hadn't been having any. I think it was just a culmination of several stressful things kind of coming together. And then one of the sportsmen that was in the group drank most of the bottle of rum in the afternoon right. and uh, drank the whole camp's rum supply and <laughs> was kind of getting <laughs> adversarial and mouthy. And, and it, 
I don't know. It was just some weird vibe. Yeah. 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 What kind of cats? Black Panthers, right? Mostly? Jaguars. Jaguars? Oh. Yeah. You'd see their tracks there. I didn't get to see it, but one of the other boats, one of the guides took them up about five miles downriver. There was an island that it, apparently it was a crossover where the cats would come out and they'd feed on the island. And there was a pile of tortoise shells there. The the jaguars would catch the tortoises up on the sand beach, pull them up and one way or another get them out. And the shells were still intact, but hollow. And uh, so I don't know how much they, I was told they ate everything that they could, you know, Access. They had the tail, the, the legs yeah. and stuff. And then with their tongue, they would lick. They've got a raspy tongue, would clean most of the inside of the shell out. And they claimed that there was a pile of them there now. I, I can't really in, imagine jaguars putting uh, turtle pile, shells in a pile. But it seems like something the Indians might do out of curiosity. Or their, their, their tongues respect. look like a spike brush <clears throat> coming out. You ever, you ever see that? You look at the tongue, it looks like a spiked like needle brush coming out of them. I've, I've never seen it, but I've heard it. Yeah, I've seen photos of that. Ooh. So anyway, yeah, they were there, hmm. and uh, but they were more afraid of the cats, and I think mostly because the cats probably weren't around people, and so they weren't naturally afraid. Yeah. Anywhere in the world you go, for the most part, bears, big cats, things like that, um, have mostly lost their fear, or have lost their uh, inquisitiveness to man because they, they get hurt. Mm-hmm. People don't tolerate that too well. So, so. they become a little more reticent or fearful. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so out there, you're just more of a novelty. It's like, what's going on? They got no real reason to be afraid. Yeah. Dinner. So that was uh, a long-winded way of saying, I've never been afraid in the jungle, but that was kind of a freaky occurrence. It, but in a good way, it made me uh, question a lot of things and think about things a lot. Yeah. Um a couple of years ago in the Amazon proper, um, we were around, well, I'll just say it, wild Indians. I, I consider myself wild Indian. They've been around people a little bit, but we're on reserve and not a lot of technology. Um, for instance, one of the things we would they would give out to the some of the, the village heads on the way were three shotgun shells. So they had stuff, but not a lot of it. And those Indians were very indifferent, but I also know that um, it was also an area where there had been a lot of Colombian drug smuggling mm. had come through that region. Uh, there was some air, some landing strips in the area where they would land and refuel and then head off to wherever they were going. Yeah. So the vibe there was very, very unusual. One of the things that was interesting with that, and it wasn't neither bad nor good, but they lived in communal societies so that when we were moving up and down the rivers fishing, our guides would sometimes pull into a fishing camp. They'd mumble something to what two guys, or usually it'd be two guys fishing or sometimes a family, and they'd be cooking, catching fish and smoking it and drying it. They'd just walk in, mumble a few words to him and rummage around through all the food and take whatever he wanted and get back in the boat and we'd be going. Hmm. Sometimes he'd leave a fish hook or... Something, but typically we'd just take stuff and nobody would say anything. And one time, uh, one of the elders needed some glasses and I had an extra pair on the last day. And they fed him at the right, the right strength, just cheapies. And uh, so they asked if I could, they could have them. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll give them to you. And, and uh, but they just, even from a stranger, they accepted that and there was no thank yous or 
anything like that because it was just their their culture that if you had something that they needed, it, it was theirs. Yeah, and uh, and that went both ways, but it, it was unusual a little bit for me, just coming from an outside culture where at least typically somebody would say, "Hey, thanks." Yeah, right. And it was no skin off my nose, but at the same time, um, prescription glasses just they he'd be lucky to find another pair of glasses in a few years. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> You'd have thought he'd have been ecstatic. Yeah, it, was, it felt a little bit a little bit different to me, but you know, live and learn, and that's why we travel. Yeah. That's that's one of the reasons I like to go to these crazy places. When I was in Mongolia, the people would, uh, we'd be somewhere doing something, and uh, the nomads would come up. They don't ride horses anymore. They drive vans and ride motorbikes. What? They drive yeah. vans? Yeah. They'd be like a... A Russian or a Chinese van with, uh, it looked like an old hippie VW van that's tweaked a little bit and a lot more stuff on it and a lot of people in there that pull up and people may not like this, but they were, there There was no respect for the land there. They'd pull up and they'd stay in one place for a day or two and they left, there'd be a pile of garbage and bottles yeah, and right. plastic and stuff right sure. where they'd been. And then they'd move on with their, their stock, which was typically sheep and goats. They're herding them with a van? Mm-hmm. Then they would move them to fresh grass, whether it was a half a mile or five miles. And you, these people were everywhere, uh, out on the barren landscape. Uh, water was the key thing. So they they would move with uh, respect to how they were going to get water to their stock. But they also had horses and camels and cows, lots and lots of horses. Huh. Um, Moving with them? Mm-hmm. Wow. And you'd see the camels and the cows and the horses more on their own, but they stayed real close to their sheep and goats. There was no predators there to speak of, so I don't know what they were. Sheep and goats, I think, aren't very smart. They might get lost. I, I don't know. Yeah, sure. But anyway, anywhere you would be, and we would be carrying shotguns most of the time, they would just drive right up and park like literally two or three feet from you and the boat would, or the, the motorbike could be running. They'd stand up and they'd step right up and they, they'd be face to face with you only six inches away. And it was just their culture. And some of the, some of the Mongolians are big dudes and it was cold. And so they're wearing these great coats and they're intimidating, imposing people. Even if they were happy, oh, wow. they, they don't look happy and they come right up to you and they say <laughs> something. And of course, I don't, I don't know what they're saying. Usually, uh, you just say hi and, and, uh, chat with them a little bit and t- typically pretty quickly some one of our guides or somebody with us would be over there to make sure that it wasn't an altercation about to happen. Wow. Because even though the land is all communally and public owned, they're territorial too. Huh. So the cool thing about that was you never really knew if they were happy, angry, curious, <laughs> or what. And, and if you're carrying shotguns and a couple of dead birds and stuff, you didn't know if they wanted to, for the birds to eat. turns out they didn't because there's not enough fat content on a wild fowl. That oh, wow. They don't care about it. To them, it's for the dogs. Okay. What, and so are they eating their sheep then? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the, all of the above that I named, they ate. The horses um, went, were raised for meat too, primarily for the... the uh, Japan and China. Oh, okay. From Mongolia to Japan and China. And they were mangy-looking horses. Sorry, horse lovers. Wow. Uh, A Mongolian pony is not a magnificent beast. Yeah. (laughs) But they're strong and stout. I want to say, is it Mongolian? In sumo in Japan, I want to say that the champion and the most dominant sumo wrestlers are Mongolian now. 
I do believe that it's they've literally taken over the sport of sumo in Japan. I think you told me something about that a year or two ago. Yeah, Russian, Russian and Mongolian. I th- I think <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm remembering that correctly, but just monstrosities of human beings. These uh, these sumo wrestling champions. I mean, they're you know obviously like. In Japan, they eat chunko and like train to be sumo wrestlers. Like that's all by design. And when they retire from sumo, typically they lose a lot of that weight. But I, th- I mean, the Mongolian wrestlers did not have the same physique as your standard Japanese sumo wrestler, where it was like a real sort of large, uh, rotund body. They were more muscular sumo wrestlers. I mean, they're just big, they're powerful, <laughs> powerful human beings. Linemen. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of vibe. Hmm. Really interesting. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know many people that do have the same observational skills that you have, though. It it it, it is. It's it's like one of your gifts. It is. I was gonna. Uh, I I was up. Ran up on a tangent again. Um, we'll come back to this. Yeah. Uh, some of the little odds and ends that I've just been describing. Um, they appeal to me. The, the Ability to get out into unknown places, and one of the things we're supposed to do is do something every day that scares ourselves. I don't do a good job of that. I should try better and harder. But getting out into unknown situations with with people, animals, it doesn't matter. Just that inner relationship of something that's unique, and I don't really know how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Typically, I sense it's going to work out okay because I'm an optimist, and that's just how I roll. But um, I love that interaction, whether it's different people or, or animals or even fish. Mm-hmm. Um, I like new experiences mm. and, and I don't know, it, that stuff doesn't, I don't, I take energy from it. It doesn't sap energy from me. Mm. I don't like to shop really, but if I go to the mall and I get around to a group of people and a bunch of, uh, chaos and just noise and things, I come away with that feeling energized and, and I suck energy out of situations like that too. Um, even scary ones. Yeah. Wow. Well, we're not going to talk about the uh, Utah thing, but maybe someday you've heard me tell you about that. Yeah. I don't want to hear it again. That, that made me scared to walk outside at night at my own house. It felt to me like it was a skinwalker episode and it may or may not have been real. (laughs) That scared that, that scared me. And I the didn't even open concept, my eyes for a while. The whole concept of a skinwalker after you told me that, and I went and looked it all up and read through all of the literature about that, it was just like, nope, mm-mm. <laughs> that, I don't want to know anymore. That That's was it. frightening. <laughs> and I didn't even talk about it for a while because I wanted some of the sting and the fear to ebb slowly away. That fear didn't leave that night. That stayed with me. Um, periodically, I'll still have a dream where I see the, the thing or the girl or I sense it. Don't know if it's real. And at the end of that night, it, it reminded me, sadly, of an X-Files episode. The best that I could say is, that might have been real. Wow. Wow. I, I don't know that it was. Yeah. Fear in your mind can do some amazing things. Yeah. But I didn't go into that looking for it. And and uh, most of the things that I have been around that were freaky three or four times were all auditory. I never really see things. I just now, hear things. Yeah, that had that the Skinwalker uh, experience also had some Native American ties to it, correct? Yeah, yeah. Tapped in, man. You're tapped in. So that was. Uh, I can say that that was frightening. Mm. 
Um, having said that, just two months ago, I was on the phone to that guy trying to see whether uh, it was a good year to go back and go hunting there. Yeah, see, I just, <laughs> see, that's what I don't understand, not, though. Like, but there's you want some to do it weird, again? crazy draw. Yeah, I kind of want to go back to that same place and see if it happens again. By yourself? I don't think it would happen if I wasn't by myself. <sighs> that's the toughest part right there. I mean, yeah. I just, <laughs> why, I, yeah I just, why would you do that? Why don't I just take my hammer out or my thumb out and, and whack it with a hammer uh, and seriously. pray for a little bit and do it again? I'd rather, I would, ra- <laughs> I would rather smash my hand with a hammer than be stuck in a cabin in the middle of nowhere by myself, not knowing what the hell was outside. That's, that, that's like a horror mm. film. That, that's a true blue horror film right there. Yeah, it was, uh, and I did read about it and think about it. And I wrote it down, my experiences a couple of weeks later while it was still fresh in my mind because I, I make a lot of audio recordings and I make written journals of most of my hunts. Mm. I got, I got mountain, I got a couple inches of hunting journals. You ever look through them? I do. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and, and I do the same thing collecting every day. And I found, um, that if you don't record your stuff that day, a couple of times a day is better. Or even every time you get in and out of the car to grab an audio recorder and just talk into it for a little bit. If you wait two or three days, you'll miss all of the interesting nuance. Hmm. There'll be big bullet point items, and I did this and I did that. But you'll miss the thing where you, um, one of the stories I always remember, probably because I wrote it down, was one day played hide-and-go-seek in a rock pile with a little weasel that was white in October. And he and I kind of chased each other around and and for about five or six minutes in the middle of nowhere, if there'd been somebody a hundred yards away watching me, <laughs> oh God, <laughs> it's a, that is an adult man and he has lost his shit. <laughs> what, the, what, the, what the hell is he doing down there? <laughs> playing playing, playing peekaboo with an ermine. <laughs> and I've done this, but you know, then I, I wrote about it and, uh, Later on, I was, uh, like literally a month later, I was back collecting again, and I was reading through the journal primarily to see where I'd been, and mm. and it's like, I'd almost forgotten about it, but as I read that, I'd written a whole paragraph, there was a half a dozen little minute details that were special to me mm. that I absolutely would not have remembered two days later, and hmm. certainly not a month later. Interesting. So that, that kind of, or at least for me, recording things quickly and and soon and and the you know when it's a hunting journal it's not just about how many birds you bagged that day or what you did but who you went which blind you went to what the weather conditions were something unusual that happened one of my last hunts a bald eagle came down and swiped a duck out of my decoys that i'd whoa which had a beautiful pintail drake and it fell and you know the boat's 100 yards away and so i walked up to get the boat and this is on the lower columbia and the current's moving and we got six or eight foot tidal changes and the water's 15 feet deep. You don't just walk out. I went and got the boat and it was, it was, it was a little bit stranded and I'm grunting and huffing and puffing to push it off of the mud and out of the weeds. And I look and I can see a bald eagle flying up the, the channel towards me and he's getting really close and, and they're very tame and calm. Bald eagles are, they're, they're a dumb bird basically. But when they fly, sometimes they're very majestic and he kept getting closer and closer. I thought, that's odd. And as I'm getting ready to start the boat, he pulled up, swooped down, grabbed my bird and flew away. And I said, oh, that son of a buck. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. Not so dumb there, buddy. 
He knew exactly what he did. He's like, he, he nailed did. it. Look at that bozo who left his boat away. I'm going to go grab his, his stuff. Look, free dinner. Yeah. I don't know. And, that's so uh, dumb. So I thought, you know, I could probably have fired the gun at the ground or something and the sound would caused him to drop it, but that, it didn't matter to me. It's okay if an eagle gets a- That's priceless. That, yeah. That doesn't happen to everybody most days. I mean, they're they're a fairly large bird too. That had to be impressive. <laughs> yeah, they're six or seven feet. This was a big one and fifty yards away. Yeah, and uh, they can be amazingly delicate at times. Huh. So yeah, you know, you you put that kind of stuff in your journal. That's the important stuff. Later on, five years from now, I'd read that about that day, and it wouldn't be about the number of the ducks or anything. It would be where I went. Uh, what I did, and you're going to look to see whether you had a good day or not, but the bald eagle is going to be the standout story for that day. Yeah. There's, I had a bald eagle no dive in right in front. I was sitting on the edge of a shore in Southern Oregon and a bald eagle just 20, 30 yards away. I see it coming down, wham, hits the water, goes up and there's a fish in its claw climbing up above my head. I was like, wow, that, that was right. I, that was right there. That's cool. <laughs> Watching him grab the fish out of the water and just went right up. That's pretty awesome. It's really, it's really interesting to, because um, I think this is a, another one of these romanticized thoughts, particularly at, m- maybe even more now than ever, where people, the motivation to be out in the wilderness is very appealing. From a, a you know, you can hear the soundtrack of being out there and experiencing the wild, and but it's it's a totally different thing to be able to live off of the land and survive out there. And there's probably not many people that can actually do it that well. I would think the numbers are really low. Minuscule mm. of minuscule. Because I always thought, if there's ever an apocalypse, I'm finding you. That's been my <laughs> that's my go to. If there's an apocalypse, I'm gonna I'm gonna be where Randy Knight is, and that's I've told you this before too. That's no secret. I, I'm gonna find you. I remember, kind of on a similar vein, one time telling my my children, I, trying to teach them how to do different things. And my daughter just really didn't care, and she was wanted to be a city girl and that's what she's become. And I said, Quinn, what are you, what are you going to do in the zombie apocalypse? You're going to be toast. I know. I'm just going to die like everybody else. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and she was cool with it and accepted it. But like, you know, if you just came out here, we'd probably be okay for a while. Uh-huh. <laughs> we, we wouldn't starve. Something, whatever happens, we wouldn't starve. <laughs> that's funny. Oh, uh, what, what, <clears throat> what led you to, I mean, you, You've made beautiful furniture and invested a lot of time in your capacity to do so. You've designed gardens, built ponds. You've made incredible hand-carved masks. Like, uh, What drives, why do you land on something and focus your energy on it the way that you do? Because it's not landing on something and being mediocre at it. You land on something and you become exceptional at it. I don't know. Although... Something my sister one time told me. Actually, I, I, it was something I wrote or I read. She had written it. Um, our parents raised us to be independent and curious. Find something we were good at and do that. It didn't really matter what it was. And they weren't perfectionists by any means. But I noticed my brother's a bit of a perfectionist and he ha- he's very similar to me. Uh, one of my, there's four of us, one sister is in particular, the, the fourth sister, not so much, mm-hmm. but, um, wait, the brother I met. Yeah. I only have one. Yeah. Rick. Yeah. Yeah. He's, because they're a little different. 
But he is a perfectionist, and when ah. he when he d- lands on something, he's very similar. He wants to nail it down. Yeah, for him, it might be conquering a little bit. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. Mm. I do that pretty well. Mm. Um, with me, it's tip. Most of the things that I've done were things that were visual that required observation and practice to learn how to do it. And most of the stuff I like uh, self-taught. Mm-hmm. You know, I would, I would uh, when I was a landscape contractor, when I was first getting started and trying not to put a suit and tie back on in the early 90s, I would, uh, there was something called service magic. And you could, as a contractor, you could put all these things that you could do on there and homeowners could come from the other end and they had 200 different categories they could check from uh, re-roof my house or build a new kitchen to install a switch plate or in my case it was all outdoors so and i did i put down build koi ponds water gardens uh dry stack walls sand set pavers whatever it was i was going to do more i would call land landscape construction than landscaping Mm -hmm. and somebody would call me up and you when the the homeowner would check on that box the first three contractors that agreed to take that job on would pay a fee, typically 20 to $50 for that job lead. But then you'd get the, the homeowner's information where they lived with a telephone number, what they wanted. And then it was up to us to, and we all had to be licensed, you know, bonded and having mm-hmm. a good license, uh, insurance. And then it was up to us to try and sell the product. So it, it was a really good system. So I'd go over and I'd, I'd talk to them and then I'd go meet and I'd look at the scope of the project and then I'd go to the Multnomah County Library and look up how to do <laughs> what needed to be done. <laughs> and in all the years that I did that, one time I only made $300 on a job, $295, and that's because I kind of got screwed by the guy and uh. I, I should have, I should have been, I should have dealt with it differently. I just accepted the fact that the piece of equipment we were going to be able to move all the dirt with wasn't part of the process anymore after the first hour uh-huh. it was his equipment and it should have renegotiated. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I would go and I'd get the books and then I'd call around and I'd find who the suppliers were and I'd put a bid together and figure out how much time it was going to take me and what my expenses were going to be. And then I'd pad it a little bit and, and I, it worked great. Yeah. And, um, I would have one to three employees and trying to manage all these things. It was, I, I called it project management and it was fun. The It was invigorating. It was tiring. I'd wear myself to the bone in the summer. Mm. Um, but just learning to do something new and be good at it and be able to step back at the end of the job and say, man, I'm, I'd be okay with that in my yard. Mm. Um, that was your measuring stick for the quality? That was, yeah. yeah. And there were some times when I left with jobs that weren't as good and the homeowners were just ecstatic or that's all they wanted to spend. Um I learned about change orders and all the other things that went with it, but that's Big Red, the flatbed I just sold. Yeah. That, I made my living off of that truck for a, a number of years, and uh, it kept me in shape. And uh, using your brain, keeping your brain active yeah. is, you'll as you get older, you guys, by my, you guys are much younger than me. You'll see as you get older, uh, active brains and the people that have them are just more whole individuals. Yeah. A little more alive. More, yeah. Alive. There's more alive. There's that ambition. There's a spark. Mm-hmm. They get passionate about things. Um, 
now I'm biased because I think I'm one of those people. And so, sure. uh, but I think for me, I, I know that it's true. Yeah. And I see that other people that I'm attracted to typically have similar traits. Mm. Um, and it turns out, uh, I was raised by a father who wasn't particularly creative, but he could do just about anything. You know, he came from the old school where we didn't have much money. And so you did your own plumbing, you did your own, uh, yard work, you, you cut firewood, you fixed the boat, you fixed your car. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't places to take it and pay somebody to repair this stuff for you. Um, so I, th- that wore off on me and I just grew to accept that as something that, that the people did. It's a part of, b- part of life, natural yeah. part of life. I, mm. <laughs> I remember when I bought this place <laughs> and I was like, Randy, <laughs> I don't know what to do. I'll, I, this has to happen and that has to happen. And he said, well, you can do that. I was like, I can't. I don't know how. Well, check it out. Read about it. <laughs> it was like this. It was such a novel thought to me to to do all of this, to attempt to do it all myself. You know, yeah. it is like the... And the funny thing was Mr. Kimura was that way. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget cutting tiles for Mr. Kimura's shower. I've never cut a tile on a tile saw before, and I'm sitting here grinding away tiles to fit into a shower and stuff, and some of them turned out okay. <laughs> Most of them looked like absolute garbage, and he was, we were just going for it, man. He didn't know how to tile his shower, nor did I, and yet we dialed his whole shower. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little, he was a little wonky, it was a little, you know, iffy, but yeah. we got her done. <clears throat> but coming back here and then having this be mine, I mean, I didn't care if Mr. Kamura's shower looked particularly weird, but... Yeah, you want your place to look nice and stuff, yeah. and 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 developing the skills, you start to recognize that skill sets are just time and again attempting, failing, and recognizing what you could do better the next time, and it does just sequentially get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's been the building the, the greenhouse has been rewarding from that perspective. I remember basically the same conversation of encouraging you to like. Do you want to get it done in a timely manner and right. affordably? Affordably, yeah. Do it. You, you, you can do it. Not, most of this stuff isn't brain science. It's just the willingness and the ambition to do it. And when you do stuff for yourself, um, for me, it's it's more intensely satisfying. Yeah, for sure. And so my standards go up. And it's not uncommon for me to put something together and not be super happy with it and tear parts of it out and redo yeah. it. yeah. Or just kind of be sheepish about it and vow to do better the next time. And there's almost always a next time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, with... I, I guess what I've always kind of marveled at with you, too, is just the fact that you're able to do these things fa- faster than most people can as well. Uh, there's there's a, a pace that everybody has to their general life, the, the, the rhythm of their life. And although... Although you may enjoy sleeping a little later in the morning, for the most part, you're going to be, uh, you know, 30 to 60% more productive than the average individual on any given day. And that is something that anybody who's been in the mountains with you, which I have not, but other people have, have said, yeah, I mean, he just moves faster, moves faster, more efficiently uh, through the mountains. It's very very unique skill set that you have to do what you do and do it as well as you do it. And, and it's not normal for everybody. <laughs> that's, that, that's kind of funny. Thank, kind words, by the way. Um, I, I think it's mostly true. Mm. Uh, I, I just came from the sportsman show and, uh, 
Oh, I was, I'll, I'll go back to a second. Uh, so I, I, I do pride myself on um, unusually good skill, observational skills. I don't know why it was a gift, but it's probably probably something. Everybody has some things they're inherently better at than others, yeah. and that probably was one of mine. Mm. And because by being good at it, I'm rewarded in lots of different ways. I've honed that, and I work at it, and I pay attention to it. And when I'm struggling with it, I do whatever I think I need to do, right, rightly or wrongly, to become better at it. Mm. Whether I'm trying to find trees on the mountain, the right mountain, the right state, um, where do the ducks want to land? You can't just want go out on the river and put decoys out and expect ducks to come and land. Even if you make noises with your duck call, you had to be. They call it nowadays. They call it being on the X. Yeah, just lingo for paying attention to where the birds want to be and putting your decoys there. And it's way easier to get them there than it is in the, you go set out a bunch of goose decoys in the Walmart parking lot and start honking <laughs> on the call and you might not be as effective at catching a goose. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, so I digressed again. Sorry. <laughs> kind of, not really. <laughs> I just, the yes, Walmart, <laughs> the Walmart parking lot with goose decoys. <laughs> just the image of that is pretty epic. That may be worth setting up at one point so, in time, just for, just for that singular still moment. The funny thing is if it's next to a golf course and it's a quiet Sunday morning, you might get lucky. Oh, you, you, <laughs> I mean, any park in Portland with goose decoys and you'd have more geese than you could imagine. Yeah. Um, so I was just at the uh, sportsman show yesterday. I hadn't been in a couple of years because I was out of town, but it's one of the things I really enjoy seeing mm. new equipment, new, seeing old friends, making new acquaintances, learning about new opportunities. And so yesterday, I'm just going to ramble. Um, I got uh, a good line on being a, a place and somebody who had helped me on Vancouver Island and country that's never been worked. And you and I have talked about this before. Yeah. And I, I honed in on a spot in Southeast Alaska that would work equally well. Of course, the, the problem is commercially feasible or, or just an adventure. Yeah. The first trip has to be just an adventure and to see what's there. And, mm. and again, go experience it. Spend a few days roaming around and poking around and hit mostly dead ends. But within a short amount of time, you'll start to find a pattern and all of a sudden things will start to come together. And then, oh, maybe this could be a thing. Mm-hmm. You can get a permit. I got the transportation. This is what the expenses are going to be. Do I want to try and make money at it? Do I just want to collect some trees personally? Do I just want a new experience of trying to find a uh, world-class spruce on a island in Southeast Alaska and find a way to get it home and make it live and have a story? Yeah. It could be all of those things. Yeah. Or it, it won't be none because I'm pretty successful and I'll just keep at it until it works, but... Uh, so I was busy doing that, and uh, one of the things that was particularly interesting, I, I ran into a guy who had a—I was actually going to look him up. He had a survival class, and he teaches survival, and he's got a bunch of equipment and gear. So I looked him up, and it's called Outdoor Safe, and I'm going to plug this guy. He's a retired uh, Air Force pilot. That One of his jobs was teaching people in crews how to survive uh, airplane crashes, uh, particularly in water-related stuff. And I was talking to him for five or 10 minutes, and he said, you have time to, uh, you got an hour? I said, yeah. He said, well, I'm, I'm about to go give a one-hour seminar. Why don't you come along? So I tagged along with him, and we talked all the way over, and I listened to him for an hour, and 
on the way over, I told him about what I was interested in. My fear is compound fracture of my leg or my shoulder. And even if I'm only a quarter of a half a mile from the truck, uh, with the kind of pain and, and the terrain it is, could be just getting there and, and or getting back into the truck and then riding up 15 to 30 miles in a bouncy washboard road. Um, I have a strong pain tolerance, but that that could be a no-go. Mm-hmm. Passing out and- Shock and uh, yeah, hitting all, all the things that can go with it. So anyway, there was only 20 people in the seminar, but man, did I learn a bunch of new stuff and I probably relearned things I'd forgotten and- and uh, I'm full of statistics right now, but one of them is uh, positive mental attitude, PMA, is 85% of surviving in the outdoors huh. in an emergency. The average emergency lasts for 72 hours. Food and water mean almost nothing if you're packing a survival kit. You can live, uh, they, they have a rule of three, three seconds if, you don't, if you're mentally unprepared. And you're not going to be able to withstand. You get you got a three seconds for that. You get three minutes without air. You get three days without water. You get six weeks without food. Six weeks. Stress and the elements are what's going to kill you. Wow. If you take a, I'm paraphrasing some of this stuff now, but if you take a hundred people and line them up from just a random, out of the Walmart store, line them up and try and predict who's going to survive an emergency, or uh, a survival episode can almost, you can never pick any of them. It's never going to be the fittest, strongest, most, the, the, the people you're going to look at and say, oh, he's a sure survivor. It's never them. It's probably a lot like, um, what was it? The special forces, you know, it was never the biggest, toughest guys. Yeah, right. It was always this kind of the meeker, mellow, rangy, five foot, 10 guys, not the muscle bound guys and the six foot four yeah. people that, you know, bench press Volkswagens and. Uh, so anyway, it was just a ton of interesting information uh, and I didn't realize that, uh, that po- the, uh, your outlook, your hope oh, and your preparedness. Um, so anyway, I came away with that feeling really jacked about what I do and I'm, I'm not as outside my element in the woods as I think, but there's a few new things that I need to, uh, just buy some equipment and sit down with my son and practice on each other. And one of the, the main things he was saying is uh, people that encounter a serious life-threatening emergency alone without any quick rescue, um, the people that are prepared survive. Hmm. And if you're prepared and if you've done this and you know how to set a compound fracture and you know how to build a shelter, you know how to stay warm, you know how to conserve your sweat, you will probably be okay. So if you've practiced that, and I think a year ago I took a MOL course on wilderness medicine. If you've done that when it actually happens, now it's like a, a survivable, practicable event. Yeah. If you've got, if all of a sudden you lose your mind and you get wet and it's going to be 30 degrees at night, you're in trouble. Yeah. Well, he, he's teaching the same way the military does. Yeah. They he, train, he us, train, us, train us, train us, train us. So if we do start getting shot at or there's missiles or things hitting us, you don't even think. You just re, you've trained so much. You just do what you're told to do. Oh, I've done this a million times in training. You don't even think about it. You just do it. It takes the stress away. So, you know, re, stress and relaxation. And, uh, did you know that the body needs a 85 degree core environment to survive in? So the only place water, the only place you need 92 degrees, I think for water to not have hypothermia 
it, you'll die of hypothermia after a few hours in 85 degree water. Mm hmm. Because water takes body, a warm, a warm, something warm tries to warm heat up, up something, something cold. cold. Yeah. And so, uh, at 85, you're, you're toast. It's the only place that where you have 92 degree water is on the equator. So there's almost no water environment where you can get wet and not have problems. No kidding. Then, which makes the Northwest one of the most inhospitable places to survive yeah. just because we're always 35 ish and wet. It's always wet. And so when, wet. When your clothes are wet, uh, you cool down five times more quickly than uh, being naked and wet, for instance. But anyway, and I don't forget a lot of that stuff, but I'll remember the themes. Huh. So you're wet. You'd be better off naked wet than clothed and wet? No, no. You, oh. Uh, Sorry. You, yeah, no. And cotton will kill you more quickly than anything. Huh. Everyone knows that. But the new synthetics and wool... Will uh, you'll lose your heat five times quicker than if you were dry. So if you, uh, when, I mean, when you go collect, knowing everything that you know, you carry a first aid kit out there. I don't carry a first aid kit, but I do carry some other things, mostly uh, a little bit of a first aid kit, a blood clot. Uh, you know, in case you got, uh, I do worry about the the compound fractures, real thing. Yeah, because I I do fall sometimes. Um, Bruises, you know, if it's a broken lower arm from your elbow down or a foot that, a break that's just broken, you're probably going to be able to crawl out and get out of even a, even a bad fracture on your lower arm, you're going to be able to limp out. Mm-hmm. The upper arm and the shoulder, collarbone, you get into some of these areas and you're in trouble. Now, your idea, chances of falling on a stop and getting stuck in the guts or something like that, that feels fairly remote. Mm. Falling and puncturing an aorta or a you know, femoral artery, that that seems fairly remote. Right. Doing what- It would be your time you, to go. Yeah. Yep. Enjoy your little bit of time. Right. Make yeah. peace think, with think, whatever kind, you need to do. Think kind thoughts as you <laughs> drift away. Yeah. Um, but I am going to carry better whistles, and I am going to carry a different type of plastic bag to stay warm in, huh. and I am going to get a uh, a signaling mirror that was made specifically for the military, so you can aim it. Oh, with the hole, the hole in the yeah in the middle. Yeah, didn't even know about those. Oh, <laughs> and there's also a uh, it's basically a a laser flare that will go something like thirty miles oh. in, in bright green, and so. You can you can fan that on the horizon. I think they last with the battery for five hours. That's a new thing. But it's something that uh, works really well in rescue situations. And the mirror, he said, works really well for overhead planes. I said, yeah, but, you know, I played with in the Boy Scouts with mirrors. And so he broke out the one with, it's got the little hole. And he says, well, you can aim it. And he said, I'm a pilot. And you'd be surprised if there's just a regular plane flying by. And, of course, you have to have sun. But you've got a, a repeating light flash coming from a certain area, it's, everybody notices it. It's, wow. We have to. That's part of flying. You're supposed to scan the sky regularly. Yeah, but you, you let's say that you're down in the wet sagebrush right. in the middle of nowhere broken, trying to get a, a, a little mirror, you know, like in Boy Scouts where you're just flashing it routinely. When you fly, you see reflections from cars and yeah. pop cans and bottles and all manner of things. But he said the recurring... Because you can aim it. If you can fla- keep flashing that off, you will get somebody's attention. You Interesting. Said it works really well. One of the things I was going to add to all this is uh, everybody is constantly worried about water. And uh, it, it's not as big a thing as we think. Um, and, you know, I, I don't carry water. 
Um, this has always been your thing. And not carrying water. And uh, speaking of that, I'm going to get most, some water. <laughs> and so, but it is so over emphasized as something that we need. Stay hydrated, stay hydrated. The next time a doctor or some professional tells me to stay hydrated, I'm going to say, why? Specifically, why that much? And what good is it doing me? I, I never really get a proper answer. I hear a lot of yada, yada, mumbo. Well, it's good for, and I think that it is good for you. But if you're packing out there and, and you don't really need extra weight, you're a fool in my opinion. Um, now there was some, there was a bigger point I was going to make about the water. This whole thing. Oh, oh, he was saying that it's very common that they, uh, so you're typically rescued in an environment in 72 hours. It, the, the rules are, if you've got water, don't waste it, but drink it. Don't hold on to it forever because when your body loses 10% of its water capacity and what that is, is going to vary from individual person to person. And it could, would happen more quickly in the summer in Death Valley than it would here. Sure. You know, you could go for over a week without water in our environment right now here in Oregon. Um, is that it's real, at 10% uh, water loss, you start to think you're rational. And then if you think you're rational, then nothing else is, you're, you're SOL. Nothing good is going to happen at that point. And they commonly find survival, find people dead that were lost or hurt, uh, dead because they just lost their shit with the half canteens, half water bottles full. Interesting. Because they just were trying to ration their water or, you know, drinking urine or any, if, it, if anybody's out there and watches Bear Grylls and believes what's going on there, you, oh, he's totally you should, fake. uh, you, you should rethink your yeah, <laughs> believability. I got stuff I want to sell you, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> he's so fake. <laughs> his support that, crew has got a, dinners being made for him. Like, so fake. That, he and that show specifically came up as people have such a, a unrealistic view of what it takes to survive. And and it, in any group of people in an emergency um, incident or a, any kind of a scenario that requires people to, to uh, ascertain what's going on, ascertain what's going to kill me first, solve the problem for that. When they solve that problem, look at what's going to kill me next, solve that problem, and on and on. 10 to 15% of the population will make the right choice. 10 to 15% will make the absolute wrong choice. The other 70% will follow the, the 10 to 15% of decision makers. If you get in a situation where that the decision makers are the wrong group, you're, you're toast. Wow. And that's a recurring theme throughout year, forever. Mm. One, one it of the was things, just interesting. They say keep doing things to make your progression better. If you just sit stagnant, then you'll start to lose your mind if you're lost or things are bad. Try to be like, okay, I, I'm lost. I'm not going to get out of here. What can I do to make myself safe a little bit? So <clears> then you're problem solving something, and then you start thinking, and then you become hopeful, and you just keep moving That's forward. part of the, the PMA, and hope is one yeah. of the... Without hope, you're in trouble too. Yeah, because you have a little task you put in front of you. Like, I need a lean-to. I'm going to get soaking wet. I'm going to die from hypothermia. So you make this little thing and you stay dry and you're like, oh, look, I did that. I'm going to be okay. Now you have hope and now you can push forward. Well, that makes sense. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Just yeah. having success. A little, yes. little some, some hint of success continues to breed hope. Yep. Becomes a compounding equation. 
Absolutely. Things go wrong trying to correct the course of the ship before it go, goes wrong again and you start losing confidence. I mean, it's it makes a lot of sense. Don't let your mind race too fast either. Just one foot in front of the other when it happens. You know what's funny when you hear about all that stuff? Even though we're talking about like the extreme of surviving out in the natural environment, it probably largely applies as a, gen- as a general theme to like life. Probably. You know, just well, like... If you're talking about 85% uh, <laughs> positive thinking, positive thoughts, hope, continuity. Uh, yeah. I mean... And, and, and trying to always continue moving forward. You know, and building on success after success, confidence accumulates. Like this is, this is these are like life skills. It seems to me. I mean, I don't know. No, I, think I you, try to be positive. You're putting the puzzle. <laughs> I really together. try to be positive. It's, a, it's considered a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, People are drawn to optimism. To that hope uh, that I remember, just because it's fresh in my mind, is that uh, people that they believe or he believes that uh, there's kind of a survival switch in most people. Uh, the problem is everybody's switch is different and it's hard to know what's going to make each individual person in this room want to survive some horrible incident. Yeah. But uh, continuity to family and friends and community uh, is the biggest single driver. I'm sorry, what? Connection to loved ones, family, community, the the thought process that I, you know, this I is the single biggest driver to survival. Kids. Yeah. Makes sense. I want to be there to take care of my parents, my wife, my spouse. Yeah. Um, stuff like that is one of the strongest predictors of whether you're going to keep going when every when hope is lost. Yeah. yeah. I tell you, the training thing helps too. I've been in a couple of situations <clears throat> where if I didn't sit down, think, collect my thoughts, I could have died real quick especially up on the mountain or I've been out in the wilderness and I wandered too far. I was like, Oh crap, this, Oh no, this is, you know, 30 some miles away from where I'm supposed to be way out where, yeah. If you sit down and just, you've practiced, you've trained, collect your thoughts, process through it. And then just one foot in front of the other, you'll get out. Practicing though, takes away the anxiety, you know? That's exactly what he said. Different words, but same thought. Yeah. Practice using your compass. Go out and if you have a compass on you, like navigate through the woods and just a compass so that you can, you get out there and you're not trying to figure this out in a moment of complete chaos and stress in your brain. You're never going to figure it out. You're only going to turn yourself <laughs> around. I, I got a funny story related to that. When GPSs first came out in the nineties, uh, I was hunting with guys that hunted Alaska a lot and guides. It was super common for sports from the lower 48 to show up, get off the bush plane in the middle of nowhere, break out their GPS, didn't understand it, and ask the guide if they knew how to use it. (laughs) (laughs) There's a really good example. Yeah. Practice with your equipment before you get into the environment that could kill you. But I mean, uh, you've had several GPS experiences where the GPS has been wrong. Once. I've had had multiple times where it couldn't find things and Uh it was just off. It would lead me to a tree that simply wasn't there and hadn't been taken um, and not close either because I, I was going back for some specific one time in Colorado it led us the wrong way absolutely the wrong way that scare you a little bit it frightened me because that was an almost spend a wet it, it was early September but it was raining and those thunderstorms and yeah. miserable and we were wet it was dark and that was going to be a spend the night out uncomfortable night one of the first trips with my son and I knew that that would probably be a deal breaker for him. We weren't going to die, but it'd be 
not fun. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was going to be uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, and, totally survivable though. And and uh, and you had the wherewithal or the awareness of your location to understand that it was in fact wrong, or did you get to a certain point and you were like, this something doesn't make sense it, here? No, it was more this. This is just can't be right. Ah. I I know where we came from. The landscape doesn't look good because it was a bunch of hills and val- rocky ridges and deep bog valleys one after another. And we were just kind of going the wrong way. It was cloudy, so there was no sense of sun or high peaks to see. But something was just not right, and I just felt we were going the wrong way. So we actually took our packs off and put them in the middle of a bog and, and put the picks down so that, and kind of marked stuff so we could see it from afar and went up the closest tall mountain and two miles away, we could see a road that we knew was the same road that our car was on. And, and our, our car was only a half a mile away or a mile away. So we were probably looking at three miles. But I, once I saw that section of road, I'd been in the country before and I knew where that was and how it laid in the landscape. So I immediately knew what we needed to do. And rather than go down and up over the next ridge, we actually made kind of a big lazy C, but it hooked us around back in and we hit the road. And then from there, we just had to find the car. Mm. I didn't know which way to go, but that was more just instinct and a little bit of luck and just being aware. Mm -hmm. This is something that I would tell anybody that goes with me and I always make Haven do it constantly. We'll be working and you never work in a straight line. You meander and you come up and go down and you get in places where you can't see. And periodically I'll ask him, I said, where's the truck? And he's gotten to the point where he's pretty good. And that's just, it's not instincts, that's observation because you pay attention to where it is, you move, you reacquaint, you move, you realign. All, all the time you're trying to remember where's home. Yeah. And, and home in this case is the truck or the road. And um, you get very good at that. And once it becomes part of your routine, boy, it'll save you a lot of time. All you got to do is get lost a half an hour before dark sometime when you're a couple miles from the road. Flashlights don't really help you. I mean, you can see where you're going, but at your feet, but they don't help beyond yeah, that. The, gr- the, the, gra- the, the greater picture of directional <laughs> yeah. navigation yeah, is. Learn, yeah. to, uh, l- learn to enhance your night vision. Embrace <laughs> it. <laughs> Pray for a full moon and cl- no clouds. But uh, yeah, you'll. Uh, he he's learning how to do that, and he's quite good at it now. Huh. It's pretty funny when you first start or you first go out with somebody and ask them that and watch some of the first reactions. You'd be shocked at where people point. You have to you have to actually sometimes make sure you don't laugh out loud to embarrass them or hurt their feelings because it's like, whoa. He is totally dependent on me. If I slip and fall and hit my head, he is toast. He may not die, but his his night's going to be wrecked. <laughs> but I mean, when you go into the jungle or into the barrens of Mongolia, you're really depending on your guides not falling and dying here, you know? This is true. I mean, so it's like an equal, I guess it's an equal partnership. You're putting your faith in people from time to time. Doesn't that make you uncomfortable with as self-sufficient as you are to put your... Uh, fate to some degree in somebody else's hands and be vulnerable like that in landscapes you're unfamiliar with? Or do you still feel like you could figure it out there? I, I usually feel I could get by. Uh-huh. No, when <laughs> Probably not thrive. When they're picking up a canoe, like you said, and lugging it out like an animal, you're like, well, they're probably pretty good out here. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have pretty much full confidence in them. However, there have been a couple of occasions where I've been with like fishing guides on rivers and it's like, 
we shouldn't be on the river in these conditions in this boat. And he's overconfident. Wow. That I, I guess I see overconfidence more than other things. And then, you know, to be, put your life jacket on, say, you know what, I'm, I don't want to go down through this. Can we walk the boat around the edge of that? Yeah. Um, you don't have any hesitation saying that? Yeah. Yeah, I do at times because uh, guides in particular are authoritarian. I would think ego would just rule the roost. Ego is a huge problem. And I would also say that when I go with hunting guides, typically I hunt on my own, but uh, I rub guides and fi- hunting guides and fishing guides in the West nuts and the funny thing not all of them but a certain percentage just don't like my personality and it's typically because i'm asking questions and it's not because i'm challenging them but it's like why are we doing that because i want to learn and a lot of times when i hire a fishing guide or something it's because i want to learn how to fish for steelhead on that river at this time of the year with that equipment and so that i can do it myself to some extent i typically won't have the boat and all the access but i can reproduce some of it and and probably catch fish Mm. so i'm really just like I'm trying to build furniture. It's like talk to a guy that builds furniture. He'll tell you how to do this, how to solve that, what he does. And most people want to talk about their passions and what they do. Guides are one group of people that uh, under questions, even if they, you explain what they're doing, they, they think you're challenging their authority. Mm. And it's kind of interesting because that's the only group of people that I've ever run across that that is. And it could be that they're, that's part of the reason that makes some of these people hunting and fishing guides. But uh, You think there's something inside of that that makes them good or that's something that has pushed I, them in the direction of doing what they're doing? Couldn't say. Yeah. Couldn't say. But I do know that once I've offended one, there's no coming back. We just tolerate one another for the rest of the day or the trip. Wow. And that's happened four or five times over the years. Huh. And it's uncomfortable for me, but at the same time, it's like, you know... I'm paying you, and all I want to do is curious. I'm not really coming back to Colorado to hunt bears here, but I, we're hunting elk here, and there's bears everywhere. I'm, I got questions about them. Sure. What are they doing? What do they eat? Where do they go? Yeah. Why are there so many bears in the middle of the desert? I don't understand. Have Have you ever had uh, <clears throat> Have you ever had any encounters with larger mammals as you're out that that kind of raised the hair on the back of your neck? A moose one time. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. And that's just because it was so close when I saw it, and it was black, and I thought it was a grizzly. And it was walking towards me, had, it had, had its head down in kind of a rainy, shitty day, about 10,000 feet in Wyoming in 2000. And uh, I was walking along a spine. I was deer hunting, and um, from out of the thicket, just literally 50 feet from me, something black and big is walking pretty quick, not directly at me, but a diagonal, like it's going to come real close and I just froze and my hair was up and there was cop, you know, I was sucking on rusty pennies and it's like, ah, the fuck. <laughs> and then I saw its horns and then still I watched because it was in the rut and they're a little bit crazy and, and moose aren't really afraid of much. Moose are incredibly dangerous, aren't they? they? Yeah, mostly a female with a baby is the big danger. But at the same time, it's like, Big, frightened. It caught me off guard. Caught me off. And once I realized it wasn't a bear, then, I, then it actually became kind of fun. I ended up following him for almost a half a mile. Just, did you know you were there? You never did know I was there. The wind was perfect, and he was a little bit rut crazed, and he was on the move and going down. I even went downhill in the wrong direction to follow him, just because first time I'd ever been that close to a moose. Yeah, it was kind wow. of awesome. The rut craze. <laughs> That's 
thing. And, uh, we get that too sometimes. Just being <laughs> in the proximity of something that big and wild for me is a thing. What's your uh, What's your favorite wild spot in in continental North America that you've been to? Not necessarily tree tree related or or hunting related. Just in general, like your favorite wilderness spot. All all, all things considered, beauty, whatever you consider to be you know, the element that makes it stand out, danger, excitement, awesomeness. Because you've Boy, been almost everywhere. I don't know, but I would probably have to say that I like rocky high ground in the high desert. No cars, no roads, no people. I like it when it's warm in the 80s, wind, the only the only thing to remind you <laughs> of civilization is the occasional jet at thirty thousand feet. Yeah, it's like the um, perfect day. Perfect day when you know slightly from the east, <laughs> about five to ten <laughs> knots. You know, there's a certain solitude there and a wildness that attracts me. <clears throat> when I pick my head up to look, I get the light breeze hits me and then it slows down. <laughs> do you uh, do you consider the Rockies high desert then? Parts of them, yeah. Yeah, parts of them. Absolutely, that's exactly where I was thinking. Yeah. That, so the Rockies, just in terms of, you still get the feeling when you're out there, like uh, like there there is a wild landscape there. Absolutely. You can find that very easily. The Front Range in general has got beauty. That, that's more pretty, more beautiful by far than the high desert, that arid landscape that I was just talking about that's really got no water. It's sagebrush, junipers, greasewood, some birds, mm-hmm. a lot of sharp things, cactus. There's something about that, and maybe I, I like to see things, just like I like to see, I like ponderosas because I can see through the foliage and see all the trunks and or, or all the limbs, the structure. Yeah. Junipers, I like to look at the deadwood, but the crowns are so full, I can't see what I want to see. Yeah. Maybe that's very similar feel to, to a high desert environment, but the front range that's got openings and glades and the pine trees and rock formations, mm-hmm. that is far more beautiful. But it wouldn't be my, that would be my number two place maybe to go. Mm-hmm. I also, I love water. I like uh, parts of the Deschutes River and the Rogue River. Uh, if you can get away from people in any sign of roads, boats, other other individuals. And it doesn't even need to be a big river. It could be a small river off of that. Mm-hmm. In the summertime or in the spring, in the morning, when everything's quiet and the, the the river smells sweet, yeah, and it's probably really coming from the alders along the banks, and there'll be a few fly, few mayflies or bugs. Or there's a little, there's life everywhere. There, if you just stop and pause, the river's moving. There's insects in the grass on the bank. There's insects over the water. The birds. I, I love birds. I hunt birds, but I love birds. I mm-hmm. raise birds. Yeah, I have homing pigeons, racing pigeons again. Um, oh, but, you got some again. Yeah, I got well, birds again. That's right. My first that's eggs. Right. You mentioned I had that. my first two nests laid yesterday. Yes, I know it. It's written down. <laughs> when did the writing? When did the writing thing start? Was this like? Is this like? I mean, because when I first met you, you everything was written down. You you have you have very organized folders full of notes for everything that you do. Maybe they're not as organized as you would think, but uh, probably in the nineties. When I was a ship's agent for K-Line. This helped you professionally and you carried it into your personal life? Absolutely. I learned how to juggle lots of different things that were 
sometimes they were related, many times partially related, sometimes not at all. Uh, but maybe 10 steps down the road, you knew they were going to be related. Um, it was just a way to handle different ships, different things that were going on and, and different time zones because we worked with Japan how, back how, in the day with telex machines. How many ships were you responsible <gasps> for at any one time when you worked at K-Line? Really two or three. Two or three. And you could always have do more, often less, but you couldn't do more than that effectively and do a great job at it. Mm. Uh, things would, you would start to drop balls and make mistakes and become less professional. Has that become catastrophic in that industry? Not catastrophic, but very expensive. Everything, you know, runs by thousands of dollars an hour. You miss a deadline by five minutes and 20 grand. This is getting a ship in to fill up with grain and you're not there in time and another ship gets... Hiring in. river pilots, tugboats, longshoremen, all that stuff. It all has... Uh, you have to do it X amount of hours or days beforehand and there's hiring deadlines and there's yeah. different unions. If you're late or if, you're, if you do something, you get standby and a lot of times standby is two, do, uh, two hours and you get a couple of tugboats and that's five, six, eight thousand dollars mistake. So... Yeah, if you, if you're not on it, people will let you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're ruining my profit here. It'll be a recurring theme that you probably aren't suited for that job. Yeah. Back then, people just get fired. I don't know what they do now. Just send you home with a note and ask you to be better. I don't. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Please try to show up at work on time tomorrow and brush your teeth and you know comb your hair and stuff. Yeah. We expect shoes on your feet. Oh, uh, I'm man. making fun of younger people. Sorry, not really. <laughs> no. When I first Go off, do it, <laughs> but when I first when I first met you, because I met you in person for the first time in 2008. Yeah, I think when you came over to see the Coke Fu with Bill Valvanis, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and through that time, after I had met you, and periodically when I'd come back to the United States, I started coming back to West Coast, California, Oregon, as I was kind of recognizing this is where I was going to be. But you were still organizing, you were still filling in to Project Manage for K-Line at that time, weren't you? Mm-hmm. You did it last year, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I'm still on yeah, call. Still on. I, was, uh, I wasn't with them for about eight years, and then I got rehired, and I worked pretty steady for a couple of years on weekends as fill-in. And uh, technically, I'm still an employee of them, although I don't even know if I did a job last year. Mm. Oh, it was two years ago then. Well, I'm on call, but... Um, They've sub, they've sublet the agency work out to another like transversal or somebody, right. another agency that handles all sorts of different shipping companies. But uh, I still know most of the longshore deadlines and rules and stuff. For um, we've got a Toyota yard that uh, unloads in Portland, and they're the Steve doors for that. So when I work for them, I would be the Steve door on the dock, and occasionally. Also, the agent uh, in charge of the ship if it's a K line ship. Uh-huh. But there's NYK and Toya Fuji that come in, and in that case, we don't care about the ship, but we always care about care about the dock, the longshoremen, and the three different unions that oversee that. And we also hire the. Um, we typically. Uh, that's not true. I was about to say something untrue. Huh. Anyway, what. It, you, it was kind of fun work. But I mean, you said at one point the Riverland on the <clears throat> on the bank of St. Helens was a higher real estate value than in Portland in terms of 
ship proximity to get into a facility where they could get done what they needed to get done and get out of the Columbia, right? That's partially right. Um, The port of St. Helens is naturally a deep water port and it's got the cliffs right there. Uh So you could bring ocean going ships into St. Helens, load them with whatever or unload with whatever and get them back out to the ocean. The water between here and Portland was too shallow to get up there and where the Willamette and the the, uh, Columbia come together is Portland but there was no reason to go up there. Uh, there. There was no dredges back in the day. Yeah. So I'm going to mess this up. I don't remember if it was the Victory ships or the Liberty ships, but the, they were 40 to 60 feet long, made out of plywood in World War II. Uh, hundreds of those were made here in St. Helens and on the end of Savi's Island. No All those old shit. piers out there were docks at one point. That's the Liberty the, ship, the, I think. The, the fishing, the salmon fishing industry was huge here. You know, there were so many salmon that used to run. They had fish wheels that actually looked like a, a windmill. Yeah, I've turbine. seen them before. And it would just come, it would just run through the water constantly, scooping fish up and depositing them into a, a bin on the bank. Times that, have changed. But so that's why St. Helens got it. That was its claim to fame. It was a natural deep water port. And so... St. Helens being what it is now, which, which which is a little bit of a depressed community, uh, yeah. I would say, that's because of the loss of the car- cargo or 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 ocean-going vessel freighter industry here. That's probably one of many reasons, but you know, there's it's a smaller area. It, it made sense to build Portland and Vancouver where they did. So industry just moved there, and we became an outlying community, and. I would say that St. Helens was a thriving community up into the 80s. Mm. They had a paper mill and two or three sawmills here. Timber was still Oregon's leading economic. Um, it was a leader of the economy anyway. And, you know, back then when I graduated in 79, lots of kids would start out at 12 or $14 an hour in the mill with a high school education. I don't know what that translates today, but I'm going to guess that would be 25 or 30 bucks an hour. Yeah, that's a decent job. So the only, not a lot of other places could compete with that. You know, you had the auto industry in the, in the Detroit, the upper Midwest. Um, there was no high tech work. So there was quite a bit of money here. Uh, longshoring was a big deal. Um, what timber, is longshoring? Timber industry jobs paid well. What's longshoring? What's a longshoreman? What they is unload, that? They load and unload boats. Okay. Up until let's, I'm going to make this up, but let's say into the 1920s, most of that was done by crane and, uh, you know, things came and went and gunny sacks full of, whether it was potatoes or beans or coffee or fish or goods, most of that was loaded onto cranes and different things with a lot of manpower. Guys got hurt. Um, It was tough physical work and gradually automation has taken that industry over too. So now they still do a lot of. I don't, I don't want to be a, a hater here, but they um, they get paid a lot for what they do nowadays. Uh-huh. They got a very strong union, although they're in trouble now. I think that union just, uh, they, they did some things that were improper 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago at the Port of Portland and ran a Steve Doring company out of business and caused them to have to pay a lot of money in the Longshore ILWU just lost a huge lawsuit a couple of months ago. Mm. They're technically bankrupt, the union is. That's not going to change how things are done, but um, anyway. Yeah, that's fascinating that so- somehow not- <laughs> nothing <laughs> changes, even though <laughs> you've failed. <laughs> you've like prove- you've provenly failed 
That's really, that's pretty radical. Golly. Yeah. It's crazy. So, Ta- just talking about the history of this, uh, of this place and St. Helens and stuff and your knowledge of it, it's, it, it, it's freaking awesome. It's kind of funny because uh, every now and again, I'll run across somebody and we'll be talking about things and I'll say, how do you know so much? And I think that I don't. Isn't that weird? Mm. My father was kind of the same way. You were, you'd earlier talked about family and upbringing different things. And he, uh, I, I, it was his expectation that somebody that's moderately intelligent would know a little bit about a lot. And when it came to working in the garage and in the yard, you'd be kind of a jack of all trades. You could probably get through most things and you might not be a perfectionist at most of them, but you'd get from A to Z and, and make it happen. And it's not that long ago, you know, he was raised in the depression that that's how, and still today is how most of the world works. Yeah. Um, you need to, uh, you need to fix your old car because the carburetor needs to be re- rebuilt or somebody's got, you, you need to fix the radiator. <laughs> you, you don't take it to the dealer mm-hmm. and take it to the mechanic. It's 40 years old and got 400,000 miles on it. It's on its third engine and <laughs> you go figure out where you can get some shocks that are going to make the left side equal to the right side. (laughs) (laughs) You plug the tire yourself when you get up a hole in it. You don't, you don't call AAA and and get towed in or or have Les Schwab come out and fix it for you. Most of the world's not like that. I mean, Lime, if there's ever a solar flare and we don't have a Faraday cage on everything, Uh, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to need to up our mechanic skills. I found a, um, I was just researching that actually the other day, trying to find a reasonable cost-effective option. And apparently they make these cool bags and all these different stuff for this. Because mm. I priced out what I was going to do. I was like, man, that's really expensive. Jeez, oh, there's got to be some kind of option better. You um, know, this is, in my mind, this is one of the biggest rackets that exists out there. For somebody to be like, I'm going to make a cage that's going to protect all your technology from a solar flare, and it's going to be real expensive, but trust us, because we know. Well, yeah. like, <laughs> no, no, no solar flare. N- nobody knows if a Faraday cage is actually going to work, because oh. there's no conceptual, although you think it is calculated out to be true, what if that solar flare goes right through that Faraday cage and all your technology is knocked out, and you spent that money on it? Yeah, you got it's an EMP. So, you know, or high, high energy waves, you know, that's good. That's good business right there. Yeah. The military's done it a lot because they've had to engineer their equipment to handle a electromagnetic pulse. So, and it's also, you got satellites in the sky that they've been practicing on satellites that won't get taken out when they're hit. Yeah. We've got a new branch of the military, Star Wars. <laughs> Space Star Wars. Force. Space and Force. Have you seen Coming. the logo? It, it actually looks just like Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. I <laughs> wonder if that was intentional. I hope so. It has to be, because if you look at the patch, you look like at the two, Star I'm like... Star Trek's too big of a part of... It's etched in, in our culture. Yeah, it is. We got the Enterprise as a ship. Come on now. Well, actually, that was before Star Trek, sorry. I don't know much about this, but I know if there's a solar flare that knocks stuff out in cell phones and satellites, the world is going to change, and if Quick. you're prepared, it will be a very good time to make... A lot, a lot of money and retire young. Yeah, dude. It, it, it's unpredictable when it would happen, but if I was a techni- technology person like yep. you, I would want to know how to capitalize on that event. Mm. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. I'll, be, kind, a, I'll be an in-demand person. <laughs> it kind of feels a little bit opportunistic. 
predatory. Absolutely. Oh, I mean, it's like no. <laughs> you know, uh, the, what's that? The Big Short, the the movie where uh, they they yeah. take basically take advantage of the economic meltdown, and it's just like wow, yeah, wow. That's, I mean, good on you. Like, way to see it coming, way to set it all up, and 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 and, and play your cards right, but. Woo, that's some guilt that's some guilt money right there. <laughs> I don't know. You should have uh, should have been more educated, man. I, I wouldn't feel bad in that wow. scenario. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> that is the one scenario I would not feel bad about. <laughs> I mean, so what's uh what's next moving forward? I mean, uh the life of a collector in terms of being able to collect at a high level, is there an expiration date on that or We've touched on this a couple of times, maybe maybe even just a couple months ago. Yeah, maybe. Um, no, I don't believe so. Clearly, there is someday. I'll someday I'll be I'll be gone. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Truer words were never spoken. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I uh, uh, well, you know, just yesterday I was busy trying to figure out a new way to collect new ground. How yeah, to, how, to, how to make it work? I how mean, to, how to how to turn a challenge into an adventure that I'll enjoy, that could lead to a couple of really cool trees for me, and it could actually open the door to commercial endeavor again. Yeah. I I mean I ask you that we have had that conversation recently but I think a lot of people look at the level that you collect at and the rugged landscapes that you're spending your time in and they're saying man how long can how how long can one guy do this for and it's like I mean as far as I'm concerned looking at at the trees you continue to collect and and what you continue to do and the passion that you have it it, it for for the foreseeable future yeah. Collecting is is still very much a practice you can do at an extremely high level. I at 59 I fully expect I'm going to do this at the same level until I'm 70. I think that the size of the trees and the distance that some of them come back from will change. Yeah. Um having said that just like on a just let's use this last month I uh, I got sedentary and had kind of given myself permission in a relationship to get a little bit old and soft, and now I've lost 10 pounds. I just came from yoga before this. Mm. I'm strong. I'm in good shape. My mind works. Um, I threw my shoulder out flipping dirt Friday, Sunday night, <laughs> and it's back now. You know, it's not a long-term deal. Um, I... I the fact that I love what I do and I'm passionate about it, and there's still so many obstacles and challenges to overcome, kind of fits in kind of with the theme of many things we talked about tonight. Yeah. Um, it's early February, and I'm not going to get out there until early May, probably. And I'm jacked about getting out and going. I'm almost out of trees. I mean, I had a great year. Yeah. Um, knock on wood. I really did have a good year. Yeah. And the quality was good last year. And I've had your, you know, it's unpredictable. You have some seasons that are are better and some that are worse and you just can't get out of a, the worst zone. However, having said that, knowing what had happened a few years ago and I had a couple of down years, my mental game was off. I was coming off mm-hmm. losing that the house and kind of my world was 
in turmoil and I kind of tucked my head in a little bit like a turtle. Yeah. I can say that now and think it through and, and I'm totally comfortable being alone. Uh, alone to me is not the same as lonely. Um, although both can happen at the same time, clearly. Mm. Um, and because my mental game wasn't all there, other things started to dwindle. My, you know, my passion wasn't as strong. My work ethic wasn't as strong. My desire to climb the mountain a second time in the afternoon and go two miles instead of one mile. Mm. All of that probably fed into that and I can see that and sense it. Um, so this year, I would be, and, and let's say moving forward, at least if that same pattern came back up, I would be able to be aware of where my failings had been and why I wasn't, why I wasn't incrementally getting better, why I was stagnant or even, even took a dip. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's just part of life too. And, and running your business, it's like, okay, this didn't work for me last time. Let's not allow that to happen again. Um, if, if I'm not doing really well here or the weather's shitty and I'm, I'm staying here because there's good trees, but it's such crappy weather that I'm working at 70% capacity. Why don't I really just pull my head out of the brown hole and drive 300 miles and find better weather and go to work someplace else that I know, even if it means an abrupt change of species or any number of other things, just get up, move, make it happen. Yeah. You know, um, that's how success occurs. And, and I, you can clearly tell I, I like to be successful at this. Yeah. Um, I don't really want other competitors to truly be competitors. I always want them to be, well, they, they tried. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's just, that's my competitive spirit with that thinking. I feel like I developed a bunch of this. And so I feel like, or, or my, the way that I collect and what I do is probably proprietary. Yeah. When I, when I see what other people do and I look at them, I think, man, I'm, I'm ahead. I'm, I'm a long ways ahead. They're, yeah. they're not going to catch up. And even if they saw what I do and see how I act, I don't think they can do it. Well, but I think back when you were talking about kind of starting to collect <laughs> and conversations with Dan Robinson and some people that had spent a lot of time collecting as you were beginning and uh, just the same as you say, look, s- somebody knows how to work on a car and I got to work on a car. I'm going to talk to the person who works on the car or guide or whoever you're going to pick their brain. I mean, you you did have the opportunity to communicate with with some people who were collecting at a high level to just get yourself sort of the engine turning and your RPMs up a little bit and get your feet underneath you as a collector in the beginning, didn't you? Oh, absolutely. I sought everybody out that would talk to me. And it was the same as back then. A lot, most of them wouldn't tell you the important stuff, sure. but they gave me enough to get started. And, and I'll tell most people how to get started, but there's a ton of information out there now. The The information age has really made stuff available. Yeah. Um, and there's more collectors and there's stuff now on the internet. There's stuff in magazines, there's books. Um, but if somebody came to me and said, tell me all your secrets, I'd say, huh. Well, no, but I, I, I'll give you a bunch of generic information. There's multiple collecting talks I've given yeah. that weren't specifically how to do it, but generalized ideas of what's going to have to happen in order to be successful, what you're going to need to do. Um, that'd be kind of like saying, I'm going to make, uh, if you need to make enchiladas, this is what you're going to need, and this is what you're going to set the oven, and you put them together in whatever pattern you want, and 
it kind of goes like this. You could figure it out, and the only way you're going to really learn to make an edible enchilada is to try it. You might have to try five or six times, most likely. Yeah. But then you're going to, it's not brain, it's not rocket science. You just got to get your hands on it. Yeah. And so collecting is one of the things that it's not the same as sitting in a kitchen and making enchiladas. You you got to go somewhere. You got to put time in, time. Observation is a huge thing in doing that. It reminds me of, uh, it reminds me of, hearing interviews with like the really big Yosemite rock climbers where they're basically like, you just have to put in years of your time on this rock in order to be able to climb it well. And when you think about like the number of people that are going to be like, yes, I'm going to go spend years climbing this rock (laughs) so that I can do it well. I mean, that's essentially the same thing with collecting. Like you got to go put in years on the rock to be able to do it well. You really do. Yeah. I mean. And I average 60 days a year. Yeah. That I'm on the rock. Yeah. And that's probably a lot. That's a lot. I, I mean, that, I, 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 nobody else is doing that, right? Probably not. Probably not. I uh, I remember three or four years ago, you and I were talking, and there was somebody had written a book that said to become to, to become really good at a, a anything, you have to put 10,000 hours in on it. And so if it's typing a phone, typing on a cell phone or... Uh, tying flies or mm. walking a tightrope. His premise was that you need to put 10,000 hours in it. And it was kind of based on what it, the amount of time that it used to be an apprenticeship, mm-hmm. as I recall. X number of years, so many hours a week, and then you'd be a master bootmaker. Yeah. You could go out and start your own shop. I've, I've heard that challenge multiple times in between, but I remember at the time thinking, I've got... I've worked really hard at this for years, and I'm at 2,000 hours. I am never going to make 10,000 hours by right. the time I'm an old man. And I'll be I'll be close, but I'll never make 10,000 hours on the rock. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of time. You know what's really fascinating about that is if you did spend 10,000 hours on the rock, I wonder what your perspective of collecting would be at that point. Because that's five times the time that you've put in right now. I'm at probably at about 3,000. Okay, so it's three, three, three and, and some change. Three times would be three times different. the experience that you have right now. I mean, you're the authority on collecting. That you would also be freaking insane. I have to figure insane. it I'd be older and we'd have to find some way to take the grumpy old man variable out. <laughs> <laughs> you'd, be a guru. you'd be a guru at that point. <laughs> um, so I'll tell you something else that he did yesterday that kind of goes into all this. Hmm. Uh, my favorite pack broke again last year. This time it was some of the the, the cloth part, which is I can't reweld it. And my second favorite pack, Haven tweaked pretty good, packing 125 pounds of elk meat out in November out of the Wyoming range at a high elevation at about 11,000 feet. Oh, he took some tumbles. And uh, so now my packs are both kind of effed up. And I've got another one that'll work, but we typically call those, well, I was thinking about it. A good name would be a two-trip pack. Probably make the first trip and somewhere in the second trip, metal parts will start breaking yeah, and right. seams will come <laughs> apart. And these are weight, and I, I don't want to, well, I'm going to hate on. They make the Kelty and the mountain climber packs and the internal packs look like. Those, those things are just no good for heavy, serious weight. Right. So even the packs that were breaking are are solid packs. The best, some of the best ones were made for packing moose meat out of 
hunts, you know, where the guys are packing 150 pound loads. Mm-hmm. And there's a bull pack, which I gave to uh, Hugh yeah, from right, Australia, right. stronger than hell that the pack, Hugh, Hugh too, but uh, uncomfortable, <laughs> just a, a death, a misery board, <laughs> kind of like what the World War II soldiers had to wear. It's like, those poor, God, that must've been painful feeling that those wooden boards and those rivets and stuff just oh, po- poking yeah. into your back and your shoulder mile after mile no ergonomic consideration yeah whatsoever. Just, just straight just hump it out so i gave that away it was strong no doubt about it i just did you tell it. him it was uncomfortable or were you just like here you can have well, no this i one. told him that uh. it was a bad one i think i gave a bad one uh well it was an okay one but not real strong to will i, I give away most of my packs yeah so yesterday i at the sportsman show I've been looking forever. I find a carbon frame pack back. Just the pack, just the bare bones pack, $600 on sale. Jeez. And and I, of course, I don't need any of the luggage or the, because we usually pull that cloth off and throw it away, give it away. Yeah. But uh, we will see. It, it feels to me like it could be everything, but isn't that crazy? And it weighs about four or five pounds. It's fairly lightweight. There's a couple spots I'm going to have to worry about it chattering and chipping on the frame. Because it is carbon fiber. Once it starts to break or something happens, it's, you know, it'll crumble. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's me, you know, doing what I can to edge into my 70s, moving ahead with the next cutting edge, some some little outfit that only makes a few of them every year. And it was made by hunters and out of Idaho, and I don't even know the name. I tried it on, wandered around on it with 30 pounds yesterday, like a dork at Sportsman Show. And, and it's like... It's the it's the best thing that I've run across in a long time, mm. and and I'm throwing an exorbitant amount of money to backpack, in my opinion. But yeah. if it's successful, ultimately it'll pay for itself in a day. Man, a good pack. I would think a good pack would be <clears throat> a, a, absolutely priceless for you. Yeah, I'm I'm look, hoping to give it a tryout within the next week. Pack it full of cinder blocks and walk up and down the the bricks down Old Town St. Ellen's. <laughs> See how it handles coming and going. And if it does, then I'm going to be on the hook for another one because you always need three packs. Bad things happen to backpacks. Guy, I feel like we could put some concrete bags in it for you up here and just have you sherpa, could those, you hold these? <laughs> sherpa those into the greenhouse for some post holes or something. Uh, Don't go do something pointless like cinder blocks. <laughs> Ryan's like a functional work up here, you, man. I could get you to work on this, please. That's right. <laughs> I have a whole bunch of tasks. We can only get the concrete so close. <laughs> the, uh, you know, and uh, and I was looking at a pair of boots. The Kenetrex are the boots for me because I've mm. got fasci- plantar fasciitis in one foot. And does that still give you problems? It's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kenetrex are the the best boots and you just can't get away from 420 bucks. Yeah. Uh, but how long does a pair of boots last? The last pair has lasted a year and a half. Oh, that's pretty good. So again, this stuff pays for itself, but I, I look at this and, and I'm, I'm a businessman, so I can do the math immediately and think, yeah, it makes sense, but it still hurts Yeah, right. to pay that kind of money for something. And, but I wouldn't be doing that if I wasn't optimistic about the future. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Here, here I am thinking what's going to make, Ultimately, it's what's going to make me successful, what's going to give me a better year than I had last year, what's going to make me, and we don't, the Bones Eye world doesn't have adulating fans like rock stars, but at the same time, it is it is a cool feeling to know that you're really at the top of the game. Yeah. And whether I was building furniture, carving masks, um, whatever it is, it, it feels good to be at the top of the game somewhere. 
especially if your ambition and your drive and your effort is what's led you there. Do you feel like uh, collecting is a discipline? <laughs> like do you because because a lot of what you're saying in terms of it's self motivated, it's a self fulfilling uh, prophecy more or less. I mean, you're creating you're creating the goals that you're aspiring and working towards. There's nobody. There's nobody else out there creating these metrics or things for you to accomplish. This is completely self, self-set self and self-directed. It seems very discipline-based to me. I mean, even just to say, like, um, you know, uh, for a moment there, I, whatever, softened up a little bit, so now I'm 10 pounds lighter and I'm going to yoga. It's, it's like the, there's a lot of uh, self-initiation to go do that. Yeah, I guess it's probably drive. Mm. You know, but do you think d- collecting in general is a discipline for somebody to be good at it? Do you think it's a discipline, or would you say it's more passion based than discipline based? Because the, the two are almost an interchangeable. The, the, there, I would say the two have to be. The two are linked. They're very together fluid. To some fluidly connected. Yeah. And, yeah, and to what extent one guy could probably have all passion and very little discipline, and another guy could have great discipline and mediocre passion at the end of the year they'd be equal Mm -hmm. and individual personality and physical strength and and a dozen other things would play into all of that um but i think you need both yeah i I need both um so i i can't say what would work for lime or my dog poppy or for taft right but i know for me what seems to work but we were talking about that a couple months ago. You were asking, am I near the top of my game? And I think I replied something to the effect of, I hope I'm only halfway there. Because if I if I knew that I was at the top of the game right now, that might sap some of my ambition or my drive. It's like, why would I work so hard? I can't, yeah. I can't get better. And for me, getting better is, I mean, that that's a carrot out there for me. I don't know why, mm-hmm. but it is. Yeah, yeah. Um. When Walter was here, you were you were here for that whole conversation. I don't think most people knew you were here until you kind of chimed in towards the end of the conversation. But it seemed like you were kind of taking that in. Yours and Walter's relationship has been a significant relationship for your career in collecting anyways. Because Walter, I think very early on, saw the potential of, of working together. But um, that conversation, and you had made some comments just about how it was interesting to kind of reflect on what was being said and stuff. I, I, I wanted to circle back and just get your thoughts on that conversation and how Walter's evolved or, or you know, what you noticed from that conversation. I don't remember uh, most of it, oh. honestly. Yeah. But Walter was the first one that saw that I had potential very clearly. Um, I, no, that's just real. Um, I think a lot of other people... So here's what I think about that specific fact. Walter been all over the world waving the flag of bonsai. Yeah. Um, he's got whatever his reasons are, and it feels like they've softened and changed, and they, like everybody's, the reasons are nebulous to some extent. They, they vacillate with different, any number of different things. He probably had just seen enough in other parts of the world to realize that there was really good trees coming out of here, basically from one person at an unusually prodigious rate. He hadn't seen that anywhere else. It, it, he he knew more people than anybody else, I would say, mm-hmm. in the bonsai world. Nothing about Japan and China, no no Far East stuff. But as far as uh, North and South America, you know, Africa, what there is in a little 
probably not South America either, but he just was well-rounded and recognized opportunity and something unique. And at that time, they, they were really good trees. They, I still get really good trees, but they were, it was probably the first time that I really registered as a blip on anyone's screen. Yeah. And he kind of ran with that. And our, my success here is partially related to him that, that basically led you to me to some extent through Jason at the very least there was a collaboration at somewhere in there after Walter and I hooked up you you became aware of what I was getting and then you came out and then you saw for yourself and then from there it's just been kind of a there's been a couple of really big upward drives and it uh it flattens out periodically yeah it did for a couple of years there the last year for sure it came up again so I think he did it partly for business, but partly also he wanted to be around good trees. Who doesn't want to be around good trees? And when you're passionate about this, nobody. I mean, that's why I live in St. Helens, Oregon. <laughs> that's ba- ba- Basically, I have no reason to actually live in St. Helens, Oregon, except for because Randy Knight lives here. <laughs> I mean, if I'm just being honest, like, yeah. you know, like I, I saw it was very easy to look at coming back from Japan. I want to work with the best material this country has to offer. This guy is the one who's collecting it. We get along quite well, and and apparently you can grow plants really well in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, shit, I moved here without ever having been here. Yeah, it was just it just was what it was. It did it made sense to me, and it's it's worked out swimmingly well. I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm pretty over the rain this year. Has been the worst that I've experienced of all ten years that I've been here. Oh, but um, I mean, I feel like the light levels are at an all time low. And probably my vitamin D levels are uh, proportional to that. But just building the greenhouse and being outside, whether it's wet or cold or whatever, has been has been incredible. It's been it's saved me this year, for sure. It rained today. Um, it rains every day. What I think about some of what he was just saying is, uh, I used to get seasonal affective disorder, and, and that means I'm still prone to it, but I would normally get mine in the fall. And that was because I was working outside all the time. And so probably I noticed it more. Um, you would get it in the fall? I would get it in the fall, usually in November. With the downturn of the... Probably, yeah, yeah, the decline in daylight. Fall's tough. And so once I knew that it was there, then just being outside and being active, I could overcome it. Mm. You know, and this year I noticed it a little bit and that I needed like to, to really feel whole. I needed a little bit more sleep and I was a little bit more lethargic in general, but I was aware. And so then my mind didn't come down. I didn't get depressed. You just felt lethargic, languishy. Yeah. And uh, and then in the spring, I don't notice at all. It could rain and be gray out there. And I'm just like, oh, God, look at that. Yeah. There's another yep. two minutes of daylight yeah, that's today. that's what I'm saying. <laughs> you can see it on the rise. I mean, even now I'm I'm bolstered by the increase of daylight length. Yeah, at 5.30 you can still see. Yep. But I mean, it is a little, it is a little bit, things take a little bit more effort when you start to fall into that slog of the, of the really short days and the really low amount of sunlight <laughs> we get here. And the funny thing is the first time I came here, it was abnormally sunny in the middle of the winter. And you just kept reiterating, hey, I just want you to know this isn't normally how it is. <laughs> I just want you to know that this isn't actually what the way that the weather typically works. I just want you, I don't want you to have a false impression of what this place is. And I remember the first spring that I came back in 2010 and I was, you, you were, you were kind enough to let me stay at your house while I was figuring things out. But I, 
I was just looking at the weather and it rained all the way until June, that first spring in 2010. And I remember it still raining in June and all the junipers having phomopsis and just thinking, what in the fuck did I do <laughs> moving to this godforsaken place? <laughs> just It was just like everything I knew about bonsai didn't work anymore. And here I am. And there's no sunlight. <laughs> when I worked at K-Line in the 90s, they wouldn't, people from California always wanted to transfer up to Portland or Seattle. Sure. They wouldn't let that happen because everybody within a couple of years would quit. Yep. And and even if they couldn't transfer back to California, they quit and move back. Yeah. And uh, that was the state that it was just, if that's a no-go. Yeah. And uh, so it's a real thing. Yeah. I mean, the trade-off though, spring, summer, fall, best mm-hmm. best three seasons anywhere in North America right here. And we do live in a in a good environment for growing trees. It's incredible. I, I mean, at, it's incredible. I look at my competition in Wyoming and Denver and I look at that and think, man, it would sure be nice to just in 45 minutes or an hour I could be I could be looking at a tree on the rock. Yeah. Out of the truck in the woods. And then I think, yeah, but and and I don't mind the communities there, but then trying to keep a plant alive it's like redwoods here. In I mean, five percent relative to... humidity and seventy mile an hour winds and yeah. uh, you know oh. six degrees. Yeah, no, the sounds like a bad idea. And catastrophic cold fall events occasionally <sighs> that just it's like no, I'm not I'm not moving here unless I I'll consider it in the witness protection program. Yeah, <laughs> no, it definitely it definitely. <clears throat> but I mean, every place has its like merits. You know, the deterioration factor of the rain here. On on wood. like dry climate wood, yeah. I mean, and yeah. the deadwood of junipers seem to be less affected than the pines, but it's like uh, having the capacity j- to just let trees dry out a little bit in the winter time is as much a justification for building a greenhouse or a structure as anything else. Mm-hmm. Maybe more than keeping them warm is trying to keep them dry for a moment. Um, and I used to have that problem too, and I remember telling you, and well, but just like everything else, you know, I've evolved my. Way I plant my trees and the pumice yeah. and everything, but yeah, it, it's possible to drown trees here in the winter. Yeah, yeah, that, that's real too. Yep. Yeah, man, what a monster! It a great, it's a great place though. The nursery uh, culture that exists in the Willamette Valley. I mean, do you still go down and just go nursery nursery hopping and try it to just find some came stuff? Up uh, yesterday, I had a couple that almost bought wee tree from Diane Lund. And he, they were living in Alaska at the time. They He retired and they moved to Spokane. He came down yesterday and bought some trees. Oh, cool. And we were just chatting about that. And I told him, I said, I, if you got time, I'd go do it. They're still there, but you got to find them. And they're going to be mom and pop spots in basically the backyard of a, a random house. The nurseries after the recession have all been cleaned up and, and everything that was there has all been chipped or burned or whatever they did to remove it. And the the economy is so good now that the nurseries are all thriving. And They're there's, back. Yeah. There's not a bunch of overgrown, dilapidated things that you can buy for five bucks a piece. Right. People in other parts of the country have no real comprehension of what this state is. And there will be another recession someday. And three or four years after that, my God, guys from back east could come out here with 53-foot trucks and load them up with, you name it, things in 20-gallon containers that are 15 years old and forgotten about for five years and the, the most awesome bonsai ma- landscape material you could ever have. Sure. 
and it is fun. That's a, that's just another kind of treasure hunt. It's a total scavenger hunt. Yeah. It's a total scavenger hunt. <laughs> I, I actually, like thinking back when Mirai was still just like uh, one single pad with about 10 benches and, you know, maybe 80 trees and <coughs> a whole bunch of piles of rock that needed to be stacked, but didn't weren't quite getting stacked <laughs> at that point in time, you know, and, I'm going to go look at nurseries. You want to go? Yes, I do. I definitely do. <laughs> it was an adventure. It was so fun. I remember there was one trip in particular that you, you I, and Panchen went down, and we found that nursery with all of the... It, Japanese there was, maples. It, there was hundreds of trees out there in those yes. big overgrown containers. Yes. We were going from one to another, and there was just too many trees to tag. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and you could only get 20 or so in my truck, and it's like... <sighs> We really need to come down here with a trailer three or four times. Yeah, and yeah. That, there was mountains of dead trees in the containers that were the size of barns. Yeah, like big barns. It was crazy. They were already chainsaw and stuff off and trying to save the plastic. Weren't they? Uh, the, I mean, most of those nurseries, I feel like, went went towards building living other things. Yeah, subdivisions. Most, most and, of that land, like Mitch Nursery, all that wonderful material, they just scrapped it. It's nothing but a field right now. They grow weed in it. The guy just wanted the land. Oh, no. I, I thought they were going to build a subdivision or houses or something. Yeah, I thought no. that was the whole reason for that. No, that doesn't make any sense. Some Canadian dude bought it just for the land. They left the house, I, though I don't know why, because now it's dilapidated. Yeah. But uh, And that was a super cool farmhouse with but, all 1930s. It was gorgeous. That place was now awesome. Now it's got leaky roof and you can just all the wood's rotten. That's too bad. bad. So you just look at that and think, uh, if only. Yeah. Even even when all that was happening, they knew there was just t- too many trees and not enough watering and and room to keep it all. Yeah. And moving and transporting trees, if you have to do it too many times, is problematic. It's it's physically debilitating, is what it is. Yeah. Well, that that led you to a dingo. It it did <laughs> it did it did because. You know, the solution prior to the dingo was calling you up a couple hours before a major cold event happened, and then the two of us were setting the whole garden down, and it damn near crippled us every time. Yeah. I mean, that was that was burly. Randy, Randy you'd be a full-time staff member if it was now. That dingo gets used so much per day. That dingo has literally saved, saved, our, saved my, my physical self. You want to take care of your physical stuff. Yeah, I, I probably made you a copy of that. It was a newspaper article that came out in the nineties, and it was titled "Trust Me on the Sunscreen." Some rock and roll band made a, <laughs> a a song out of it, even. But one of the things on there was "Be kind to your knees; you'll miss them when they're gone." Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> knees and hip, knees and backs, shoulders. And I was just talking to Steve Wilcox and Lee Cheadle the other day, and Steve was talking about his old football injuries. If you're a parent, you got a kid that you want to have a future, and he's getting beat up on the football or the sports field. You should rethink what you're doing. People. Yeah, that I, I, all my life I ran across that. It's like you screwed your knees up in high school, and now you can't do anything, and you're in your mid thirties because you played high school ball. That and I, I don't really care about sports, so I'm not a I'm not a I'm biased here. I think organized sport it's not my thing. Yeah, and I look at it and think, man, what a I would be so upset if all of a sudden my knees and hips went out because I'd played basketball or something in, in high school and now I couldn't collect trees and do the things that I wanted to and couldn't be active in the mountains at a decent level. 
I think yeah, about it with Taft. It. I think about it with Taft all the time in terms of organized sports, and it's like all organized <laughs> sports did was uh, cause me to tear some tendons, dislocate some shoulders, you know, sprain a, some wrists. That was ultimately what brought tear, you into bonsai. Tear a quadricep muscle, and bonsai was the solution to uh, a sports problem. <laughs> you know, it's just like a, a redirection of a totally fruitless path in life towards something that's become, you know, basically a lifestyle and a career and a passion that continues to grow for me. It's It was a pretty awesome trade-off. It was amazing that what it took to get there. I think that's our clue. Dude, we've, uh, that's, that's, uh, closing in on three hours. Two, two hours, 13 minutes. Oh, two hours and 13 minutes. Is that long? It's not long I, enough. I mean, it's not long enough. We could do, I, I would like to do this more frequently yeah, with you. I could sit here with you all night. So. I know. The <laughs> amount of, the amount of stories that you have, I mean, I'm sure, you know what the, you know what people are going to remember from this podcast? No. What's, what's the Skinwalker story? Oh, dude. <laughs> That's what they're going to remember. It's creepy. I don't even want to hear Good it. to have you there, sassy Sasquatch. You, 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 you can tell everybody the Skinwalker story on your own time. I enjoy rapping about this. You remember Shelby? Yeah. She's got some friend who does weird, uh, he, he does a podcast just for, for fun. I had lunch with her the other day, and... Uh, I'm going to do a podcast for them about the Skinwalker story here in the next month. Are you serious? Is uh-huh. Shelby's the one that was into taxidermy, right? Yeah. It was uh-huh. my daughter's college roommate. Yeah. Skinwalker, taxidermy. Taxidermy. All right, we're going in the right direction. And now she's a manager at the hotel manager for McMinniman's Edgefield. No kidding. Yeah, she's really come a long way. I Doing used well. to go out. To, I would go over to your house, and you'd be in the garage dissecting birds with Quinn and Shelby and I was always like this is really some weird stuff right here like <laughs> Randy doing it I totally get it but his you know college daughter and her roommate seemed it was it was pretty intense if, man if, if everybody kind of rolled their eyes and said what and my, my daughter summed it up perfectly well one day I said why do you want to do that before we started she says it just feels like an arcane skill that would be useful to have and Shelby was in biology or zoology at the time and interning at the Portland Zoo. And I thought, some uh, college girls want to learn how to do taxidermy on birds. It's They're going to look not good, but it's going to be fun. And, man, we had fun. Hmm. We were out there in the garage working on different birds and things. <laughs> and now everybody has a bird for the top of their Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> You'd see the finished product and they would be just a little off, you know, like... They would be close, but wrong. <laughs> close. It, it was like wrong in the way that a, a, like a robot is not quite human, you know? Like there's something just a little off. It's like you'd be looking at the taxidermy bird and you'd be like, oh, I, I know what it's supposed to be doing, but it's just a little weird. I read a book on it when I was a kid. I just never ventured off to actually try it on my own. I can tell you read two books, things that but... have been pretty epic fails for me as far as high quality turnout. Taxidermy. It's hard. <laughs> I to make something really lifelike is difficult. Uh, ducks and are especially hard with that's real short feathers on the heads. You can get away with a lot with a pheasant <laughs> or a quail. But uh, racing pigeons, trying to win at racing pigeons, man, those old men just kick my ass up one side <laughs> and down the other. And I think I'm getting close, and I'm still like five minutes behind, which would be, I don't know, like a uh, couple hundred yards on a mile run. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not really in the same ballpark. I might as well fly chickens. <laughs> yeah, and you worked hard at it too. You worked hard at the racing pigeon and, thing. And now I'm back probably for another ass handing. <laughs> That's awesome. Very cool. Thanks for sitting down with us, man. Yeah, it was fun.